Hello everybody and welcome to another interseason episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers Ward, and joining me, also as always, it's Mass Dogden. Oi oi, none this guy. She could Yep, that was a thing. Valis is out there who don't speak Japanese. Good luck. For those who do speak Japanese, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of people who don't speak Japanese, it's Tim Matum. Your skin is green. Your ears are pointed. You have fangs. You're really worried about the bad sequels. No Shrek, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no Shrek allowed, Tim. Don't make we me agreed tap the on signs. <laughs> Don't make me tap the sign. <laughs> we do have that in the studio, listeners. So genuinely, there is a no Shrek sign allowed. Yeah. Well, I would think we should have that on a t-shirt at some point. Yeah. That no uh, one's going to buy. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a Patreon exclusive t-shirt coming up soon, because <laughs> the mm. patrons will care, but no one else. No. But speaking of Patreon, this episode was, in fact, voted for in a poll on our Patreon page. We basically did cities that movies are set in. Mm. Famous cities from around the world. What were those selections, Matthew? Do you remember what the three selections were? I think it was New York, Paris, and Tokyo. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. We've done London previously. We did London yeah. Town. Mm. You boys are from London. We are. Good, yes. Wholesome time and all that. You're one generational gift away. I am, yeah. But both my parents are from London, so yeah. we're basically all Londoners, give or take. Yeah. Now we're talking about Tokyo. We were all born in Tokyo, <laughs> <laughs> and all three of us are born in Tokyo, mm. spiritually, of course. <laughs> but like I said, if you were on Patreon, you could have voted in this and chosen Tokyo. It won by a reasonable amount. It was, yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty close. It, they tend to start off fairly close, and then a couple of latecomers pile in, and then one thing will win on those votes. But if you want to have your say, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. If you join us at the £5 tier or higher, you get to vote in Patreon votes. That happens every single interseason and season, because it'll be coming up for requelizers as well. We, we've been doing the votes for a while now, and they've had some pretty interesting results. Hmm. It puts a bit of control in the in the listeners' hands. Exactly, exactly. If you go to the ten pound tier, you get bonus content. We of course do the exclusive interseason episodes. We've just released two of them. There's a third one coming up right at the end of the interseason as well. You get three in the interseason. You get three movie commentaries in the main season. You get all the outtakes and bonus content throughout the main season as well. Plenty of stuff there. You go up to the twenty pound tier. You get exclusive merch. You get discounts on merch. All that good stuff. You get to the thirty pound tier. Oh boy, you get to be an executive producer and get a shout out on the show like these fine folks have done. David Selinger. So, as, as referenced in previous shows, we now have the live studio set up. So Indeed. The boys have heard that one. I am controlling the board here, mm. but the trick is. Matt has preloaded these sounds in, mm. and Tim and I don't know what's coming. They're just labelled uh, on the board here, EP1, EP2, EP3. No offence, EPs. <laughs> You're just numbers to us now. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fault. Um, so rather than doing a quiz and, and, and doing too much, I'm just going to say, any ideas? Not a clue. Avengers Endgame. Oh, so close, Tim. Uh, it's 1963's The Insect Woman. Ah. Ah. It's not a superhero film. Fucking weird movie. It's about, <laughs> it's about prosies. Yep, yep. Next up, we have Marcus Lindstrom. 
Any thoughts? Avengers Endgame. Tim, you're so close again. I think it's something from the 50s. Something a bit older. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. It is 1966's Tokyo Drifter. Damn it. Oh, is that Tokyo Drift for a second? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that will come up later. Genuinely, Mm. I don't know. We'll probably reference it at some point. Of course. And the third EP, none other than Canis Rufus. Venga, vamos, ayúdame. No? Thank you very much. Any ideas? Also, no. Tim? Avengers Endgame. Ah, Tim, nailing it, but also a little farther off. Uh, No, it's 2003's Tokyo Godfather. Oh, I did have that thing, and I thought, no. It's it's the fact that he's speaking to her, and I can't remember if it's Spanish or Portuguese also, but yeah, and she's like, oh, uh, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Excellent. And if you go to the £50 tier, you can, in fact, become a VIP and get to pick a film for us to sequelize or requalize as it will be in the upcoming season. The VIPs are Jonathan Firth Clark. I mean, you know, you're a smart guy, you know? Good DJ and maybe ask the club like to give you a job part-time, like bartending. It's really fucking easy. I did it. It's a piece of cake, you know? Especially in Tokyo, I mean. Any thoughts? Tokyo Drift? Uh, Tim, you should have stuck with Endgame. <laughs> It's not Endgame. Uh, no, that uh, Jack, I assume, no, 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 is 2009's Enter the Void. Oh, oh of course, of course yes. it is. Yeah. Gets my no way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Of course. Yeah. Th- that batshit film we've actually talked about before. Title sequences. The yeah. title sequences. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that is fucked up and mental. <laughs> it's it's an intense film. <laughs> the next VIP, Hyper Dude Man. <laughs> Any thoughts? Tokyo Drift. Gale Bill. I'm afraid <laughs> Jack has pulled away here. Yeah. <laughs> like a, some sort of drag racer. Some sort of Tokyo Stallion. <laughs> it's not a phrase. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Kill Bill Volume 1 from 2003. Nice. Yeah. Next up, Josh Miles. Come on, <laughs> Any ideas? Austin Powers in Gold Member. <laughs> no. The first line there is Tampopo san. Oh, fuck. It is <laughs> 1985's Tampopo. Amazing. Stuart Maine. <laughs> Uh, guys, the Grudge. <laughs> well, not a bad shout. Yeah. That's French though, so. No. <laughs> I feel like it's a Takeshi Miike film. Uh, don't know. So there's an anthology film from 2008 called Tokyo! Exclamation mark, and this ah. one is mad. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Next up, Philip Morgan. Does it get easier? No. Yes. It gets easier. This might be the easiest one on the list. Yeah. Avengers Endgame. There it is. 
Thank you, Tim. No, Tim. <laughs> it's lost in translation. That is indeed 2003's Lost in Translation. I don't like it. I don't like it either. I liked it when it came out, ah. and I like it less and less and less. Not just because Bill Murray is mm, questionable. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I never liked it to begin with. I was, I disliked it before it was cool. <laughs> I, I, I was, uh, we'll come back to this later, but I was, um, I think 19 when it came out and it opens with a shot of an ass. And I was like, yeah, good film. <laughs> ah, art. <laughs> no, no, no. Ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our last VIP, the one and only James McDowell. So now um, you see me too. <laughs> they do go to Tokyo in that movie, unfortunately. It's true. And I still can't believe it's not. Now you see me. No, you don't. <laughs> it still drives me mental. Um, is that Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, or the one where Ghidorah comes in and then they have a Mecha Godzilla as well? That's the exact title. Yes, <laughs> no, it's um, fucking close enough. It's 2003's. Godzilla, Tokyo, SOS. Oh, it's interesting. It's Final Wars. You, by the way, in That's that list, film I've not seen, there I mean. were four different movies from 2003. Weird. Yeah, yeah it's an odd thing. Good year for Tokyo, 2003, so. apparently. Travel back 20 years ago, go to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Good, good year for movies. Well, thank you, VIPs. Thank you, EPs. Hopefully you enjoyed the little clips there. And thank you for your support. As we always say, you make this cool little technology possible. Literally, the reason that we can buy this kind of stuff and have little weird fun quizzes with the clips is because of you and your support. So we really, really do appreciate it. And like I said, if you want to get any of the bonus stuff, the discounts, the merch, go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. So, kind of the normal interseason format this week. We're going to cover some history of Tokyo, some personal stuff, bits and pieces in the first half. And then in the second half, we're going to dive into some specific picks. Mm. Highlight some movies that highlight Tokyo itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to kick off with, this was harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I thought, oh yeah, it's the Japanese city most people think of. Same way when you th- people outside of the UK think of the UK or England, mm. they think of London. Yeah. Mm. Every British film is just set in London by default. Mm. Well, we established in, this epi- in the previous episode of On Cities in Films, which is like, cut to Big Ben, cliche yeah exactly and i thought oh the same thing there'll be a ton there'll be like just an uncountable amount of movies that are specifically set in tokyo actually not that many and the ones that are literally have tokyo in the title like most (laughs) of the time there was a bunch of films i was like well that's probably well there's an anime movie that is oh yeah that's not that's not tokyo that's outside of tokyo and then oh that one's out in the countryside so that's not tokyo either I even thought of something like Black Rain or something like that. And I was like, mm. that's fucking Osaka. That, that's also not Tokyo. It's like, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I thought it was going to be an abundance of options. But actually, Tokyo is a surprisingly... And like you said, a bunch of stuff happens in 2003. There seems to be these almost like phases and gaps between things being filmed in Tokyo and, and released and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then we come back around and it's like, oh, there's nothing really set in Tokyo that's come out in the last... 10 years well here's a bit, a bit of an example so um if you uh, listener do do this exercise along with us um because one of the things it's i wrote star down, jumps listeners do the star <laughs> jumps i don't care if you're driving um <laughs> um what one of the things i did was like ah oh, this is what i want to talk about and then i had to sort of really stop and think of like hang on no 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 
that's Yokohama. That's not Tokyo. I mean, it's very, very, it's like 20 minutes outside mm. of Tokyo theory, mm. but it's not. It's in a different prefecture. It's a different thing. It's like, that doesn't count. Mm. And I got, and just because Tokyo, we'll come back to this later, but Tokyo is fucking enormous, but it's, it's not the same thing. Mm. Um, there's a lot of prefectural stuff and whatever, but even like, right, what's a film that's come out recently? This is the exercise I want you guys to do. Think of a, a, a quintessentially Tokyo film. Chances are it's not there for very long. Now, there mm. are obviously people who are going to be like, oh, I'm thinking this. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. As Jack said, if it's got it in the title, probably is mm. there the whole time. But let's take um, one of my many follies from our summer movie draft last year. Mm. Um, Bullet Train. Mm. It's a big old thing. No, no, no. It's on a train. <laughs> so, yeah, the opening five, ten minutes are in Tokyo. Yeah. The rest isn't. Yeah. And you're like, ah, yeah, okay. That's just Japan. Yeah. And it's also kind of faceless Japan, where it's just like this idea of what Japan mm. is and so on and so forth. Um, and that's, that's another thing is that, mm. especially when it comes to making our picks, you want a film that you feel says something about the city yes. or represents it in an interesting way. Yeah. And so many, especially foreign, i.e. American, British, whatever films that choose to set something in Japan, nominally Tokyo, <laughs> aren't saying anything particularly interesting about the city. You know, they're representing it in in a shallow way or it's, you know, the most generic. It's like, oh, yes, look, here's a place where they do karaoke. Uh, here's a very fast train. Hey, look, it's here's, Harajuku. There's yeah. girls in maid outfits and yeah. fashion yeah. stuff. Yeah. And now we're just back to uh, generic, you know, rooms which could be in anywhere. Uh, or, you know, we're showing you the Japanese countryside, which isn't actually anywhere, you know, we're, we're many miles away from Tokyo at this point, but we want, you know, we want to show you some other things, you know, that, yeah. that in this country. We, we drove out here to, you know, we flew out here to film it. We're going we're gonna to drive around a bit and get some glamour <laughs> shots. It's like, yes, but that's not, you're not exploring the city. You're just, you're just taking B-roll at this point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and it's, that's arguably true of so many places and so many countries and so many mm. cities. I'm sure um, it's something we complained about in our London very episode likely. as well. Yeah. But it's surprising because you don't think of Tokyo as one of them. You end up thinking, ah, oh, yeah, but Tokyo is an exception to the rule because it exists separately because it's a, a cool cutaway to go to. It's a good thing to set things uh, up as establishing elements. But again, as you said, it's not about just doing a Here's a good backdrop for five minutes. I mean, case in point, some of the stuff that Tim brought up earlier, being like um, uh, Austin Powers and Goldmember, and like, yeah. how much of that is set in Tokyo? It's like, a bit. Yeah. How much it feels like actual Tokyo? Mm, yeah. In, in that lens, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, if you go on, as I was, the Wikipedia page for films set in Tokyo, yep. the, you know, the category kind of thing, and you get stuff like Avengers Endgame showing up, and you're like, when is that in Tokyo? Oh, it's when Hawkeye is doing a bunch of racist murders. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And when it's like, he's Ronin, that, yeah. I guess. And it's like that mm. film that that is that is not a film that is at all concerned with saying anything about Tokyo. No. The, the, but Tim, furthest, it has the location card. It, it says Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it has less to say about Tokyo than Civil War has to say about Germany. <laughs> you know. Absolutely correct. It's it's just a backdrop for this to happen in. Yes. It could be literally copy and paste anywhere. Yeah. I think what struck me, and you're totally right, Tim, like scrolling through that list. It's exactly what I was talking about when I was looking for like, well, I'd like to do this. Oh, fuck, that's not set in Tokyo. I'd like to do this. Oh, fuck. That. 
Because I feel like Tokyo has such an incredible distinctive look to it and a visual style to it and all this kind of... It's a very cinematic looking city because there is so much going on. There's lights and distinctive streets and famous landmarks and all this kind of stuff. And yet you do often get this... That wasn't filmed in... That was like fucking... That's just Jeremy Renner in Vancouver somewhere. And they CGI'd some like, oh, it's a Japanese neon sign in the background. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally Japan. Promises Japan. Yeah, we put lots of neon lights up. We switched on a rain machine and... Absolved. Yeah. 100%. And you get moments, and definitely the films we talk about in the second half, where you really get the feeling of Tokyo. And I've been to Tokyo a couple of times, and it's this real kind of moment and i specifically had it in a few video games uh hello talking about video games i'm not <laughs> gonna tangent too long i promise but no, no, it's good. i've never had that feeling so like evocative in my brain when like playing in the yakuza games oh yeah and playing persona 4 and persona 5 mm. jrpgs for those who don't know they're role-playing games set in actual tokyo and different sections you go to Shinjuku and um, you mentioned Yokohama, like going outside yeah. of Tokyo a little bit in, as well. In Persona 5, uh, there's a whole thing about, you're a school kid who has to get to school. It's like, now navigate the underground. It's like, mm-hmm. sorry, what? Yep. Welcome to the Tokyo Metro. Now, oh, then you, once you unlock, you can go to Shibuya and go to yeah. the famous crossing and all this kind of stuff. And the look of the shops, the size of the streets, the amount of people, the colors of the lights, all this kind of stuff. I was just like, God, that looks like Shinjuku. Because I, I was staying in Shinjuku when I was in Tokyo. So I got to know Shinjuku really well. I did a walk like from Shibuya to Shinjuku. Despite every Japanese person there being like, are you walking, you <laughs> fucking maniac? What are you doing? Like, well, I, I, I'm only going to be here like maybe a couple of times in my entire life. I may as well walk and explore and stuff. So why not? But actually walking through the streets had such a like cinematic feel to it. There is just this atmosphere in a city like Tokyo. We mentioned before, same thing happens with London. If you know London yeah. and you get the vibes and you sort of, oh, you can really capture the spirit of the streets of London. Oh, this feels like East London. This feels like South London, all that kind of stuff. And the same thing with the districts of Tokyo. There are certain moments and certain streets and certain shots where you're like, that feels like Shinjuku. That feels like Shibuya. That feels like Akihabara. Like all these different things. Yeah. And I found that fascinating kind of trying to see it. And I was even, to, to literally put it through a lens, I did some filming for Super Happy Kill Time while I was there. You did? Literally, like, setting up a little, like, gorilla pod stand thing with my phone, pointing it at just a bunch of cars driving past, just a street <laughs> in Tokyo somewhere. And it really made me think about, like, oh, what's going to look good on camera? So I almost had that kind of, I assume you have this, all the time literally but, all the time <laughs> this, this is like me tapping briefly tapping into matt's brain and being like, my world fool that, that's a shot that's a shot oh that'd look good that's a shot and i had that going in my brain and I, and I don't know if that was why it's kind of stuck in my brain so much or because tokyo is such an interesting vibrant city but ever since then i've had a moment where i've gone like god that just perfectly captures that moment and i think like we said when you get a lot of western films they pay that lip service but they just don't nail it. They don't just get that vibe and that essence of Tokyo yeah. in the same way that I've seen in some of the picks in the second half and video games that specifically want to draw on that thing. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, just to, I, I guess, uh, mirror Jack and for some reason, unfortunately, ostracized Tim. <laughs> we'll come back to you later. Um, I've been to Japan before. I'm going back in a couple of months. And 
I was doing a fair amount of filming when I was over there. I'll be doing more filming when I go back out there. And um, for those who don't know, it's my web series, Super Big Kill Time. And Jack's right. When you look through the eyes of a filmmaker, I mean, yeah, you know, when you're on holiday, you know, getting photography and stuff like that, you like you get stuff that you think is cool and you get the architecture, you get the, the street food, the people, whatever it is you want to capture and take home with you. But when you're trying to get um, uh, cutaway footage that isn't just B-roll, that actually feels like the place, really interesting close-ups, really interesting um, angles and things to cut away with, a, a distinct and unique and signature you do start seeing things that are like that feels right that feels right that gives me the sense of 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 tokyo of of osaka of kyoto so you're looking like if in another city it's like i want to see more traditional stuff i want to see the more temple aspects i want to see the tori gates that's why i think of kyoto when you see tokyo you want to see the sprawling endless concrete buildings mm. in osaka you want to see the giant glass towers there's all kinds of different representations as there are in every country um and as Jack said, it's the fact that most filmmakers don't tend to capture that. Um, and for me, going to Tokyo for the, well, Japan in general, but going to Tokyo for the first time was, uh, I mean, I'm a big old weeb. What? <laughs> no. We know this. Says the man in a Gundam hoodie, I know. surrounded <laughs> by Gundams and Zelda and other Japanese dragons and anime stuff and a sumo thing over there. Godzilla's up there. Godzilla. Here a while. Godzilla. And Godzilla and Akira and yeah. Cowboy Bebop. Akira Kurosawa, Akira Kurosawa posters, and Kurosawa Dragon stuff. Ball figurines. Um, what else have we got? Sumo Godzilla. Poster. Godzilla again. Yeah. Um, photos of you in Tokyo. <laughs> you monsters! <laughs> um, oh, uh, uh, Gundam and Gundam. Pokemon! Uh, um, Samurai Eva swords. Evangelion, um, uh, Final Fantasy, uh, uh, Gundam. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think we're there. Oh, Battle Royale. Um, You'll be listening to everything. You'll be here ages. Gundam. I'll keep talking as he talks. So, <laughs> Gundam. There's also Pokemon. Yeah. Pokemon. Um. <laughs> Godzilla. Totoro. Totoro. Cat bus. So Matt likes Japan, everybody. It's true. <laughs> uh, anyway, point Thankfully, is... Thankfully, so does your wife. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, this would is... be a very awkward living room. It would. So basically, the idea is that it was a very transcendent trip for me. It was like a once in a lifetime, thankfully now twice, um, experience. Because like I've been waiting for this. Because as a child growing up with, you know... A strong Japanese presence in terms of technology and anime and all these things that were like, this is a magical, strange place. And obviously, that's a fetishization. When you get to a place, it's just a fucking place. Um, but there are still things that are like, this is an important point of what I have dictated my personality to be. And you can have the opposite of that, where Japanese people go to Paris and get Paris syndrome, which is immensely depressed because Paris is not what they think it is. I love that that's a thing. Yep. That blows my mind, get, but also makes all the sense in the yeah, world. I love Paris because I'm from London, <laughs> so I know what Paris is like. It's going to be full of mardy motherfuckers yeah. and it's going to smell of fucking filth and cheese. Um, and it does, and it's lovely. Um, but I, I, again, genuinely love a metropolis. I love a, a bustling European city. Mm. But the Japanese are expecting this very fantastical thing yeah. that a lot of people expect Paris to be. Um, and because Japan has certain interesting standards in terms of uh, culture and practices and cleanliness and crime and all the other bits and pieces to not see that around the world is unusual. So to go to Japan and say, no, it's exactly what you think. It's like, holy fuck, this mm. is crazy. Um, and especially considering with cinema, so much of your opinions of Japan in general, and therefore by extension Tokyo, are dictated by 
uh, by film and TV and all that sort of stuff mm. and, and the culture you absorb. So subsequently it's like, oh, everyone's going to have seen this film. It's like, nope, that's not popular right now. Mm. People are watching MCU films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Everyone's going to have said Cowboy Bebop. Nope, that's a 30-year-old cartoon mm-hmm. that wasn't popular in Japan. No one's going to know what you're talking about, even if the film came out. You know, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's not something to become a talking point. In the same way someone comes over here and wants to talk about the carry-on movies with a Gen Alpha yeah. kid or a Gen Z. And like, they're not going to know that shit. Yeah. What about, oh, um, perfect example, Americans talking about Benny Hill, yeah. which has not been on TV in this country for decades. Yeah. Um, don't think I've ever seen an episode of anything outside of the mm-hmm. Yakety Sax reference. I yeah. know literally nothing about Benny Hill. Yeah, and yet because it's played in BBC World around the place, everyone's like, oh, you must love this stuff, right? Mm. Like, sure. <laughs> So, um, Tokyo is a very interesting thing, and I'm always surprised because Jack and Tim had mentioned it, but I want to reiterate it from my side as well. It is difficult to say, this is a quintessentially Tokyo film that shows Tokyo off, that does the city justice, the people justice. And as I mentioned before, Tokyo is enormous. It is huge. It is a sprawling, genuine mega city. It is a... Uh, and this isn't me just going to, you know, wanking it off and saying, oh, I, I fucking love it. It's the best place in the world. You want to live? It's like, I don't want to live in Japan. I cannot, <laughs> as a tall person, I do not want to live in Japan. Um, and obviously Japan, like everywhere in the world, has its own fucking problems. Mm. It's still a right-wing little island, which sounds uncomfortably familiar <laughs> to the right-wing little island we live mm. on now. Um, but the point is that um, Tokyo is huge, which means you get things breaking down to prefectures. You break things down into to districts and boroughs. Mm. There's so much of the city. And if you go to some of the tallest buildings, like the Tokyo Sky Tree or, or the Metropolitan Government Building, you look out and you see literally city mm. as far as the eye can see. And just in the horizon, you see a mountain. It's like, holy shit. Mm. And I'm, again, I'm from London, which is a huge metropolis in Britain. Mm. But it's also built differently mm. and tokyo is a very strange concrete madness that's built on canals you wouldn't think it's so many waterways in, in tokyo which again you don't see these things in films mm. you wouldn't think to see that because it's just an unusual um uh trivia bit of novelty basically. Yeah. um and it's also interesting seeing like if we talk about new york for example i'm gonna cut away to new york and much like the london calling sort of thing what do we cut to right and it used to be for a period of time the two towers mm. uh you very rarely see the single trade world trade center now mm. it's not really a thing they were focused on because yeah. it's not mm. as distinct and things like that. and i understand why so you see like the chrysler building you see the empire state building mm. you see central park you see, see a, a subway train going through a station that's exactly <laughs> it um and you see uh the statue of liberty there's a handful of things that are key signatures tokyo is a weird one because again you think you know what you're looking for because you've seen things that you start describing it and you're like no that's Los Angeles. It's like, no, 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 no. The big billboard with geishas drinking coke. No, no. That's Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Los Angeles. Oh. Yeah, that, okay. That was four years ago in Los Angeles. <laughs> according to <laughs> Blade Runner. Yes, according to history. It's set in 2019, folks. Yeah. It still blows my mind. And if you say like, oh, no, I, I know what it is. It's those, um, those red gates that inspired, you know, Star Fox and stuff. Mm. And like, no, no, that's Kyoto. So, mm-hmm. Oh. So... The question becomes like pagoda and like castles and stuff, right? Like, yeah, it's probably Osaka. You're thinking of Osaka Osaka. Castle. (laughs) Or if you're being particularly confused and or racist, that's going to be China. Also, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And that's the thing. It's like, I know some people are, you know, 
avid fans screaming, ah, oh, what about this? What about that? And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But for the, for the generic sort of like cutaway for the, for the average viewer, mm. the almost insulting, let's say Tokyo on screen in big letters because you don't know where you're, you mostly have a feeling, and this comes back to what Jack was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a feeling of a place where the, the uh, and Tim mentioned this, the rain slick street with the neon mm. lights bouncing off. And to be fair, when you see that stuff, you go, holy shit. I'm in Japan, yep. but you're actually probably in Dotonbori and Osaka, but that's none of the <laughs> um, So subsequently, the one jumps to mind for me personally is the Tokyo Tower. Yeah. Which, for those who don't know, is a replica, effectively, of the Eiffel Tower, except it's sort of red it's orange. It's red, yeah. Yeah. Um, and smaller? I think a little smaller, yeah. yeah. Uh, what about, uh, Tim, uh, what I would, you? I would say Shibuya Crossing is yeah. the other thing. That's it. it. That's yeah, it. for sure. Um, the whole scramble, especially because that emphasizes the busyness of the city. Mm. You're not just you're not just here's a landmark. You're mm. also saying some you know in in the same way. In a certain way, obviously, any landmark has something to say about a city. But just looking at looking at the Statue of Liberty more tells you about what America thinks of itself rather than New York necessarily. That's fair. That's fair. Um, there are obviously associations in that it's close to Ellis Island and you then go into kind of immigration and stuff like that. But, you know, there are certain things. You can look at Big Ben and go, ah, oh, here is a city that values the past with London and stuff like that. And yeah. tradition, and, and that's our seat of power. Exactly. Um, and yeah, with Shibuya Crossing, you go, here is a city that is crammed full of people it is huge and it is bustling and and organized like but dance. yes exactly <laughs> there is an organization to it as much as it may seem chaotic there is a structure here and possibly one that you will find alien because everyone yeah. else seems to know what they're doing but maybe you don't it's it's the classic fish out of water moment isn't it mm. uh, and, and this is going to sound probably very offensive and segues us into the next point actually it's usually a tall person yes. stood in a crowd going, oh, they're all doing something. I better walk with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or if it's uh, Scarlett Johansson, see through umbrella so you can see her. Yeah. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Um, but that does segue us to the next point. Tokyo has two identities uh, on film, at least. Uh, and I think for a lot of people listening, there will only be the first one. The first one is Tokyo through the lens of foreigners mm. or international filmmakers or observers or tourists or studios or producers, however you want to describe it. It's the perceived Tokyo from outside. And this is true of every city. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one is the lens that Tokyo is seen through by the Japanese. So if we talk about the first one, for example, because that's one people are going to be familiar with. Um, this is where you get like your Tokyo Endgame, your Tokyo Drift, your Lost in Translation sort of stuff, and it's the whole. Isn't it weird how they do this? Isn't it odd how mm. they do this? Oh, what a crazy world! I could never. Survive. How exotic! That's it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's that um that perception of othering and things. But yeah, it's the, the the hero is the person you're following around as the audience surrogate, mm. and they say like, oh, I'm gonna find some geisha. It's like, again, that's a very Kyoto thing, but sure, you want to hit the tick mm -hmm. tick boxes, as it were. Um, but that's that's what I'm at my initially things jump to because that's what we are kind of raised on when it comes mm. to film. And in a way, that can be an interesting way to approach a city because you you presumably the the assumed audience, mm -hmm. the assumed film watcher, has not been to this place. 
you know, the majority of people have not been to, for example, Tokyo. Yeah, sure. Um, and so approaching it from an outsider's perspective can be an interesting way of filming it and of getting an appreciation for the city because you are essentially saying, like, this is what it would be like for you to arrive in Tokyo as well. You yeah. know, it's a real, you identify with the characters in that way, you know, whether it's Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation or, mm. you know, uh, what's his face in Tokyo Drift. That's exactly you know. his name. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, that guy. That yeah. guy. Um, you're, you're absolutely right, because it's the culture shock. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's culture shock, it's feeling out of place, and it is not knowing not knowing the language, not knowing customs and stuff like that. And so there is an approach you can take that is interesting in that way. But it's very easy to slide into, in particular with Tokyo, kind of Orientalism and, and, and all mm. that stuff. And just like we said at the start, fetishization of the city yeah. and of the culture and of all those th those things, and falling into stereotypes as well, because usually in that case, the filmmaker is also foreign to the city. There it is. And the writer is foreign to the city, and the production is foreign to the city. Mm. And so they are also approaching it with an outsider's perspective. Almost kind of what you want is a Japanese filmmaker making a film about a foreign person coming to that city, mm. because that could be a really interesting thing, because they wouldn't then know oh, these are actually real parts of this city rather than just what you expect from other pop culture. Yeah. Let's steer them to this place, and that's an interesting place to tell a story. Um, that's, from my understanding, quite a rare thing, just like it's, you know, it's very rare that you get a British filmmaker making a film about an American visiting London. Like, that yeah. just doesn't tend to happen. Weirdly enough, we, and this is a bit of a digression here, but I'll, I'll go along with it. You see a little bit of that now with things like YouTube, where mm. you've got people who are uh, from Canada and North America, as in the US, USA or Britain or whatever, and they've been living in Japan for a good 10, 15 years. Mm. They know outside of the tourist stuff. They've made friends with certain Japanese people, et cetera, et cetera. They know the customs and they're still treated like outsiders. So they have an insight, but they also know their audience. Yeah. So there is that level to it, I think. Mm. But you don't see that as much from filmmakers... All the time, should we yeah. say. Yeah. And you can also do the thing of, and I'm sure there are plenty of films that are examples of this, a Japanese person coming from a rural setting or a different city coming to Tokyo and having that own level of culture shock, just like you can have stories anywhere about a person yeah, arriving yeah. in a new city and finding their place in it. You Tim, know. let me give you one. <laughs> um, we mentioned it earlier. Yeah. The Insect Woman. Ah, yeah. Uh, it was one of my picks almost. Uh, the Insect Woman, 1963, is about... And this, the reason I didn't pick it was because it's, well, because I have other choices, but basically it's about someone from a rural village mm. who moves to Tokyo to get into basically prostitution. And it kind of messes her up and she returns to the village as an old woman. Mm. So it's bookended by not Tokyo, but the impact of being in Tokyo is yeah. so, and there's a, again, that classic lens of the Japanese, like what's Tokyo? Well, it's going to eat you up. Yeah. It's full of rife opportunity for uh, crime because from Japanese point of view there's no the crime levels are arguably low but they're not they're just gone underground because of the nature of Yakuza and other things and organised crime etc and people are picked on in different kind of ways and yada 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 but 
the sex trade and sex industry and repression of sex is such a weird thing in Japan. So Tokyo is seen as a thing that will swallow you whole because it is this giant sprawling mm. mass. It is a it is a, uh, a threat, as most cities tend to be, to rural-minded um, individuals. And so she is changed and she goes home. Mm. And again, that's a Japanese story about it. And because it's the 60s, it's obviously a very different time for Japan. They're in a economic flourish kind of getting there at mm. least. So... Um, yeah, there there are different examples of it, but mm. they tend to be a bit older. Yeah, usually. And then, of course, the other angle on that is Tokyo natives making stories about Tokyo natives. Yes, knowing the city and approaching it from this point of view, both as a filmmaker and the characters mm. of yeah, here's a part of the city, or here's here's a here's a big portrait of the city. I'm going to show you all of Tokyo, or here is a very specific part and I'm going to tell a story in this and obviously that because it's such a huge city and really any city gives you the opportunity for so many stories to tell um so yeah there's yeah. you know a thousand stories that you can tell easily very much so and because Tokyo is such a huge we mentioned this point I wanted to reiterate this huge sprawling metropolis there are so many options of where you can film in Tokyo in mm. theory obviously I know there's like Licensing and tax rules and tax breaks <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. All these things that can affect it. Honestly, and trying to, you know... Practical concerns. Practical, and... Yes, exactly. Filming in quiet streets. Like, yeah, good luck with that. Um, there are, are all these aspects to consider. But, you know, where Toho Studios is based is like a train ride away from mm. the center of mm. Tokyo, which we could argue is Shibuya for argument's sake. Um and it's like there are so many options of what you can do and where you can go. There's a little island called Odaiba, which has its own Statue of Liberty, oddly enough. Um, it's just, of course it does. It just sat there. Um, next to the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, not what you're thinking, Mario Kart fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, again, that little cluster is... A, you could do... I mean, I filmed a lot there. There's so much you can do. There's so much you can see. But it's, again, if you know the areas, if you can know these things, and filmmakers tend to reflect on these things and, and fail with it. And Japanese people will say, I don't want to talk about, you know, um, Shinjuku. Mm. I, uh, I want to talk about somewhere else. I want to talk about a different prefecture. I want to talk about a different area, yeah. different ward, should we say, not prefecture, or ward. Um, but yeah, it, it, it shifts according to what you want to say. Um, and if you take Your Name, for example, mm. the animated film Your Name, which again would have been one of our picks, very close, that sort of stuff. That is the juxtaposition between country life and city life. Yeah. You know, and the fact that when these uh, two, for those who don't know the premise, it's about uh, teenagers and a bigger body swap um, situation. Um, and this uh, young girl lives in the countryside and is very connected to the local temple and stuff. And it's all very quiet and serene. And she lives with her family in a house. Whereas uh, the young boy lives in a flat in a building apartment, but it's a whole bustling different existence. The school life is different. It's it's all, you know, mm. a, a comparative uh, exchange of, of of culture in Japanese setting, as it were. So that lens, for example, you can do so much with it. And I think, as as Tim said, the idea that when the filmmaker is doing their version of that story, one of the prime examples of that, because when people say oh, you're going to Japan, you're going to Tokyo. I see this on fucking YouTube. You're mm. going to Japan, you're going to um, Tokyo, whatever. What films should you watch to prepare to get excited for your holiday? And everybody says, 
lost in translation. Fucking lost in translation. Jesus yeah. Christ. Film I just don't give a shit about. I just I don't know if I just don't get it or mm. I've never particularly liked Bill Murray, as we talked about many moons ago when we <laughs> did Ghostbusters. Yeah. I've angered a lot of people by saying I don't particularly give a shit about Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Don't give a shit about Lost in Translation either. But yeah, it's this weird... Uh, it feels like it's viewing Tokyo through that lens we've just been talking about, right? It feels like yeah. it's putting Tokyo into a box and making it feel like a specific way. And my experiences in Tokyo, granted, they're separated by like 15, 20 years or so nearly, but are not just the the kind of typical thing that you would kind of expect from so often the expectations you go into from seeing it in media and seeing it in film and all that kind of stuff and lost in translation i think does capture some of it but i just i find that film just very difficult to to grab onto to really kind of latch onto anything at all pretty much there's <laughs> a frustrating sincerity to lost in translation mm. because it's frankly autobio- autobiographical of Sofia Coppola's experience. Mm. Oh, is it really? Yeah. So, <laughs> allegedly. All oh, right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, Giovanni Ribisi's in it, and Anna Faris is in it, and uh, Scarlett Johansson's in it. Scarlett Johansson plays a disaffected early 20 something with a very high profile artist boyfriend. And he's husband, w- I believe. Is it husband? I think, I think husband. so. Yeah. I think they're meant to be recently I, married. Yeah, that sounds right, about right. Yeah, right. so that, that makes more sense as well, because the whole, like, we should be together for the... Yeah. Tim, I agree with you. Um, so, they're a new couple, as it were, and they're in that, that capacity, but they're not spending time together, and he's busy on this project. And apparently, around the same sort of time, Sophia Coppola was going out with Spike Jones, I want to say, or was married yeah. to Spike Jones, possibly. And it's alleged that the Anna Faris character is a substitute for Cameron Diaz. Oh. Who had made um, Being John Malkovich yeah. with Spike Jones. Yeah. yeah. And how they were sort of like having this very weird chemistry with each other. And she felt ostracized and didn't connect. And she was mm. locked in a hotel room in this weird city that she had no idea. And I'm like, that's the authenticity. That yes. feels real. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the thing is that I think the the emotional heart of the movie about two people finding each other even though they're at completely different parts of their life mm-hmm. yeah and and finding a connection that rings true to me and i'd say this is someone who has not watched this film in a I while a very long time um, yeah but the fact that and, and the idea of being in a in a place that isn't your home yes. works yeah. fine but the japanese nature of it often feels like it falls into borderline racist yeah. like caricature it really does because you end up with I mean there's innocent stuff there's the whole they're in a karaoke bar in wigs and it's like yeah, yeah sure and they're having well at one point they're having a fight with each other so they take it out on the restaurant by saying oh what's the point in having to cook my food myself what is mm. this gonna, what's this barbarism mm. it's like mm. no it's, that's what the fuck are you talking about yeah, yeah. and then they gets the whole like oh I've sent a, a hooker up to your room and the whole lip my stocking yeah, stuff yeah. it's like oh this is uncomfortable yeah. and then um even even the photo shoot with the with the whole Suntory time stuff, yeah, Rat Pack, whatever, and the translations. It I, I get where they're going with it. I sort of understand it. But the more you watch it, the more, and the more you actually watch other films set in Tokyo, the more you go, this is telling me nothing about the city. Mm. 
and all about these people. It could be literally, it could be somewhere in Cambodia. Yeah, it yeah. That's, Egypt. That's, it could be, it could be Vancouver. Precisely. All it matters is that they're not at home. Yeah, that's it. And that they're they're somewhere where they feel isolated. Yeah. And I bet there are plenty of people who fucking love that movie who are very angry with us right now, saying it's quintessentially Tokyo. It's, Eat it's so a dick. <laughs> Because I had that thought as well. I had the exact same, like, uh, you could just said it in any fucking hotel. It doesn't particularly matter. Granted, there's the language barrier and stuff there that I think increases that feeling of isolation and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But Quebec, then. Right, exactly, right? Just set yeah. in somewhere in Europe where you don't speak that language. Like, yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be fucking anywhere. And I think that comes back round to that thing of we don't know how to capture Tokyo. Like, yeah. us as foreigners and Westerners and Gaijin, like, going in there and being like, this is Tokyo. And then you have the complete different perspective of Japanese filmmakers. And again, the perspectives and nuance within that of people from Tokyo who live in Tokyo making films about Tokyo and people coming from outside of it and making films about it as well. Even boiling down to, like, documentaries and stuff like that as well. And then mm. you touching on the YouTube side of things, Matt, I think that's, like... I know it's veering away from like films and stuff, but the the crew that is like Chris Broad, uh, oh, Pete yeah. from Premiere Two, Sharla, the Trash Taste guys, yeah, all that kind of like that group of gaijin in Japan mm. making Japanese content. like to always like tourism content. A lot of what Chris Broad does, yeah, it's traveling it's across travel Japan. Shows, yeah. Here's this kind of stuff. It's that kind of. This is what Japan looks like as a foreigner. I have lived here for 10 plus years. Mm. I speak enough of the language, all that kind of stuff. This I have settled here. This is my home. But as you said earlier, Matt, there is still that element of I'm still an outsider. And those always feel, I know, ignoring the fact that it is literally real life and I'm kind of being a bit unfair comparing fiction to <laughs> actual real documentary footage and stuff like that. But that feels so much more authentic to my experience in Japan. Again, I'm a six foot two, like, 19 stone white guy i stand out in japan <laughs> i am bigger and heavier and taller than every other motherfucker in the entire train that happened to me multiple times when i was traveling on the metro same and there would be the tiniest little stick thin like old man just like bumping into my knees basically and i'm mm. like well this is awkward <laughs> I, I, it's true because I, I mean i gandalfed everywhere in that fucking country uh, for those who don't know it means I bang my head on shit. <laughs> um, you were shot it, with perspective. <laughs> I cried because there was no one around me I could understand. <laughs> um, no, um, yeah, and I remember saying, no matter how hard you try to ingratiate yourself into the culture in some way, or just try the language, people obviously appreciate the effort. I remember an old, similar old man with a cane. Uh, in, he, we both walked towards an escalator. And I said, oh, dozo. For him to go before me. And he looked at me like, the fuck did you say to me? Yeah. I said, oh, see what I said. He said, oh, uh, you're Japanese. Very good. Like, yes, sir, thank you. <laughs> Just get on the fucking escalator. <laughs> Move, you old duffer. <laughs> now I'm talking English. <laughs> Nihongo Jozu. Like, Tall yeah. white man shouts at yeah. old Japanese man. <laughs> there, there's the old kind of stereotype of if somebody's like, oh, Nihongo Jozu. Like, yeah. That means like, I'm being patronizing. Your Japanese is shit, but I'm too polite yeah. to say yeah. it's shit. It's like, I've made an effort to learn half a dozen words, obviously more in your case, but in my case, yeah. I do not speak Japanese. <laughs> I do not claim to speak Japanese. I can do accents and pronunciation pretty well from my like voice acting training and stuff mm. like that. I got away with it. There was a moment when I was in Japan and I was there for work. Those of you who don't know, I used to work for an international language school and I would go there 
twice a year, so I've been there three times, out to um, basically go around different parts of Japan, pretty much Osaka, Kyoto, and Tokyo. Surprise, surprise, the three big oh. cities. And uh, meet with agencies who would send their students to our school. Very simplified way of doing it, but I can't be asked to talk about it on a podcast. Nobody, nobody cares <laughs> about that kind of stuff. The reason that matters is I was traveling by myself. My boss is Japanese, was Japanese. My former boss, she is still Japanese. I don't know how that tense works. <laughs> um, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and when she wasn't there to translate, I would wing it with the handful of Japanese words I know, such as sumimasen and all that kind of stuff. The, the, mm. the couple of bits and please and thank yous you need to get around, basically. And I made the terrible mistake of speaking in Japanese on like the intercom to one of the offices. Oh God. And I used all of my Japanese words with <laughs> as much pronunciation as possible. And they started talking to me in Japanese. <laughs> and I went, hi, hi. And then came up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I heard blah, 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 Jack, blah, 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 blah mm. company I work for. I went, yep, in Japanese. Yep. And then just came up the stairs and they just greeted me in Japanese. And I was like, Oh fuck! <laughs> how do how do I say I don't speak Japanese? Um, uh, uh, hello, <laughs> and and I basically went like hello, and then did the whole business card thing again. A big thing in Japan and Japanese business. Yeah, and it was a, it was almost another lens looking at Tokyo from a business perspective as well because the whole salary man thing. You really, I really got that kind of. I was going to these massive conferences, like big international stuff. So there's people from around the world. And then when I left that conference, I was meeting Japanese people in Japanese offices, and I was the white guy. I was the <laughs> guy coming in and being like, hello, I don't really speak your language, but I've nailed a couple of words, mm. so... Offices yeah. that are full of paper yes. and fax machines. Fucking fax machines. <laughs> this this actually brings laws. us to a really interesting point that film doesn't always connect us with, because Japan, Tokyo specifically, sometimes feels a bit timeless. You can watch an old... Um, a beat Takeshi film, for example, uh, like you know, like you know, gangsters in Tokyo kind of shit. Mm. The, the, the idea of what's happening there, and it kind of, except for some of the fashion, even then, it doesn't necessarily matter. Some pics, for example, that I think I don't know Jack will bring up later in the show. It feels kind of like it could be set maybe late seventies, yeah, maybe twenty twenties. Yep, it's it's a weird city. It's a weird culture in that regard because it's a post-war boom and a literal post-nuclear society yeah it's the yeah. only arguably only major country to have experienced actual nuclear shelling mm. through obviously world war ii and so subsequently it is like well what would like a world look like when you when you've been like drop bombs i was like i could tell you japan mm. and they aren't allowed to have an army so that has a very interesting view on your politics and when you're expressing it through film and cinema you do the whole like well Let's play with this as an idea. Let's. What if we had this amazing police force and you get like Jinro and stuff like that, sort of, you know, and 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 Pat Labor, mm. the movie kind of thing. It's like, yeah, this we don't have that. Their police are oddly quite not ineffective. They're quite innocent in what they do. They're mostly, you know, conductors of mm. traffic. Whereas mm. the lawyers are the ones who actually go investigate crime seasons. That's a bit unusual. So like the third murder, for example, uh, being being a a, a crime film. And it's about lawyers going off and investigating scenes and interviewing people. Like, mm. isn't that what detectives do? It's like, that's not what happens here. Yeah. Oh, but I saw like Black Rain, for example, and they deal with it. The there are still detectives. Yeah. <laughs> they do different things. Like, I don't understand. It's like, 
that's because you're not from here. Yeah. Again, coming around to video games and stuff, the video game judgment is a really yeah. good example of that. Yeah. And really opened my eyes to like how much power Japanese lawyers have and how the whole system in Tokyo works. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, you play as a former lawyer turned detective, but he still has a legal license. Yeah. So he has certain access and certain requirements and certain things he can do that other people can't do. And it matters a lot whether you have a legal license and what you can and can't do mm. and can and can't say to your clients, to your representatives, all this kind of stuff. It seems way stricter and way like more focused on that kind of stuff. And the whole legal system ties in with the police in a completely different way. And I think that's often kind of imagined that, oh, white detective, American detective, British detective goes over to Japan and they don't know how the system works. It's like... Yeah, because it's completely different. And even going back hundreds and hundreds of years, talking about how isolated Japan has been for this this long and how it's closed itself off in terms of culture and stuff for so, so many years, literally centuries of essentially closed borders. It was illegal to be foreign in Japan. There you go. Exactly. Sounds like we're exaggerating. It, it, it really was. It is uh, the most homogenous like, ethnic country in the world. By that, I mean... It has the highest percentage of native Japanese people in Japan in the same way that, you know, you think of a lot of like developed countries, we're becoming these interesting, diverse, multicultural centers. Mm. Japan is only really starting to do that in the last few decades. And even then, reluctantly, reluctantly, mm. they're having a lot of issues with um, like population issues and all that kind of stuff. And again, I'm trying not to speak for Japan here. I'm just from what I've read, what I've oh, seen, yeah, yeah, what I've yeah, heard, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Do your own research, people. Exactly. Don't take my word for it. Please do go and research this. But I find it interesting that even going back to, you know, something we'll talk about in the second half, you think of like, oh, the samurai movies. And we mentioned like Kira Kurosawa earlier and all this kind of stuff. Those really influential Japanese filmmakers. It's not saying Tokyo necessarily because Tokyo didn't exist. Yeah, that predates that city existing. Mm -hmm. This is the interesting one we had a bit of a discussion about when we were coming up with our choices. Uh, and I know we, we, we came on an, an arrangement to it. It's like, yeah, that counts. The soil is the soil. Um, very brief history lesson, because much as I mentioned, like The Third Murder, for example, or, or um, a handful of others, you know, crime movies, or uh, The Yakuza Papers, all these different, different things. They don't give you a crash course because their primary demographic is Japanese people who already know this. Yeah. So you go, I don't fucking care. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, and like female prison scorpion, that kind of stuff. Like that. I was like, I kind of get what's going on here. I don't need to know. She's got a cool hat. She's killing people. Problem solved. <laughs> but the point is that stepping back, you know, you've got obviously 70s, 60s, all these different films and cultures and things. Hmm. And then you get to a very weird cluster of Japanese history. I'm going to go through it very, very briefly. You have, let's face it, as far as cinema is concerned, the past. I mean, <laughs> any fucking time in the past. And then you hit the 1600s. Mm. And everything changes there because what happens is Kyoto is no longer the capital. Kyoto is, is where the emperor was, but the shogun wanted to own it. I'm not going to go through the whole history, but you do, do your research. Weirdly yeah. enough, when I went to Kyoto, it felt like Norwich. Norwich also mm. used to be the medieval capital mm -hmm. of England. And London and Tokyo is a like a, the kind of analogy of like going from our little city here, where it's full of like farmers and rural things mm. and lots of traditions and all this kind of stuff, and then going to 
bustling mega city that is mm. London slash Tokyo. Yeah, mm. and because Tokyo wasn't bombed, because I can't remember which general it was, mm. or whatever, some some high up alleged American ranking general said, "Don't bomb Kyoto." So why? My wife and I went there on our honeymoon. <laughs> it's like, oh, so Tokyo is still intact with the older buildings, the older houses, the older Kyoto. You mean? Sorry, sorry, my apologies. Thank you. Kyoto is absolutely, and mm. we'll come up to that in a second with that fucking name. Um, whereas Tokyo. You know, ripped down, build up a million times. Mm. But Kyoto was the capital until the shogun, who was like, I'm now in charge. The emperor doesn't count. Me. I am important. Mm. I'm the new effective emperor. It's the mm. Caesar sort of mindset. The Republic is dead. I'm in charge. Mm. And I live in Edo. Mm. Now, what's Edo? Well, that's a city on the east side. Okay. Well, what are we going to do then? It's like, well, let's take Kyoto and just switch that round <laughs> to Tokyo. It's like, huh? <laughs> it's the capital in the east, basically. And so they renamed it. And so everything moved, all the power shifted there, all the money shifted mm -hmm. there. They had this huge mountain range. They had to force um, all the different warlords and things, all the different uh, feudal lords to come and visit them. Mm. And that would cost a fortune. There's so a particular path. Again, funny enough, covered mm. by Chris Broad in a recent video on yes. his YouTube channel. We keep plugging <laughs> <laughs> Japanese YouTubers and, yeah. and YouTubers in Japan. And... They, they would specifically have this road that was particularly difficult to travel. Yes. And once a year, at least once a year, your lord of your prefecture would have to go and visit the shogun and pay their respects and pay their taxes and all this kind of stuff. And oftentimes they would lose men on that trip because it was hard and maybe you didn't bring enough supplies. And oh, there's, the wheel of the wagon's fallen off. The horses are dying, all this kind of stuff. It's to keep them weak so you can control them. Mm. They have yeah. to travel to come to see you. And that weakens them. They have to put the money mm. and the time and the effort and the men and all this kind of stuff into this travel. There's fewer people to rise up against you and fight yeah. back, essentially. And so similarly, as we've just said about Tokyo in the contemporary setting, Tokyo in the past, even Edo as a city, you're looking back at the past and think, well, if it's the past with like tons of samurai or some sort of like cool ancient film, like, yeah, where's it set? It's like, mm. well... The past, Matthew. Yeah. Just <laughs> Who the knows? countryside? It does yeah. it matter? Like, yeah, well, what about the built-up city areas? Like, well, this would be just like somewhere. There are a handful of very solid examples, obviously. And then you get to the 1600s where the borders are closed. It's like, now it's illegal to be a foreign in Japan. Mm. Get the fuck out. We burned all the, all the Christians. Uh, silence, the um, Martin Scorsese film, for example. Yes. And a good example. N no Tokyo in that, but, you know, it feels like the time period. You want, oh, you want to use it as an mm. example, but you can't. Um, and then you get to weirdly enough, uh, The Last Samurai. <laughs> there are many other examples. I want mm. to bring them up as, as a case. Because that's a film which has several significant narrative portions set in Tokyo. Mm, yeah. Um, but it is not a Tokyo film. It has a lot of Tokyo in it because it's mm. about um, the Meiji Restoration, which is mm. when, right, America and Britain and, and I think Netherlands and other people mm. rocked up and said, Hello, we'd mm. like to do some trading, please. And they're yeah. like, nah, it's illegal, mate. I said, listen, I'm going to blow your fucking yep. island away with these guns if you don't do this. Yep. Oh. Chandler from Friends was very angry. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> That's a fucking <laughs> reference. It's good. So this happens. And then it's the modernization railroads. It all takes, picks up yep. speed. Oh, what is everyone else doing? Invading countries and having empires. We'll do that. Hello, China. It's like, mm. oh, no, no. Oh, hello, Korea. No. <laughs> and, you know. And Japan doesn't want to talk about certain things, obviously, historically speaking. So you tend to see little clusters. And Tokyo, you'll see cutaways, cutaways too. You'll see bits of it. It will feature. But mm. there's not always a case where it's the whole city. You mm. see, like, you know, 
Edo or a castle or something like that, you know. Mm. And these things don't necessarily exist anymore. Yeah. As actual lands, places you can go and film, so you have to build it from scratch. So it's expensive to try it. Um, and talking about Tokyo in the past, mm. existent or non-existent, there's also Tokyo in the future which is something we haven't really touched on mm, yes. because a lot of people when Neo they, Tokyo. yeah well when a lot of people when you go what's what's your favorite film set in Tokyo you go oh Akira it's like is that Tokyo it's yeah. Neo Tokyo but Tokyo had a big explosion it gets it, blown so, up in the first 30 seconds so yeah. are there is it the same city is it even in the same geographical location or have they moved it and you know yeah. how much does it count well that's that, that's a perfect example because i remember when i was planning my trip and i don't mean like when i went in 2017 mm. i mean you were gonna go a, dig up akira's remains i wanted to find it so i could have you know when the laser comes looking for me i'll have my giant moldy filth arm so I yeah can, you know yeah i took the wrong lessons from that film anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is when i was a kid i was like oh if i went to japan i want to see where all these things came from i want to mm. see all these landmarks i want to see these bits mm. i, I like, want to do the cool bike slide i yeah. want to do the bike slide yeah and then you think, oh, I want to see Tokyo. It's like, I want to see that big giant building with all the like, the, oh, it's like gold, as it were. And you look at it, that's not a real building. It's like, oh, yeah, because it's the future. It's like, not only that, it's not only just the future as viewed by the 80s, 1998 specifically. It's the fact that in the opening shots, as you say, you see Tokyo wiped out in an explosion. Mm. And then there's a top down view of this crater where the city used to be and the areas are nearby. So you're like, well, what are the landmarks? It's like, there kind of aren't any. Yeah. It creates yeah. its own new ones. Mm. And people miss, uh, misunderstand and say, oh, Ghost in the Shell. It's like, that's not Tokyo. As we covered in our Ghost in the Shell episode. It's a fictional city, depending on which version you're watching, yeah. what, well, it's, yeah. what it's called. Um, and, and again, you get this, we, we talked this before, this, this evocative idea. And so again, people mm. say, oh, I'm going to Tokyo. Oh, and then they just, as I said earlier, they describe Blade Runner. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> that's, that's not it. Yeah. Um, even. And, and even mm. in films like that, where it's, you know, it's Ghost in the Shell or it's, yes. you know, a lot of the times the filmmakers are evoking Tokyo. Yeah. And maybe taking imagery because it is such a dominant, it's the biggest city in Japan. And when, if they're making a film set in the future where it is a built up metropolis, even if it's not explicitly set in Tokyo, they're going to be taking imagery and stuff like that yeah. from Japan. The same way a American filmmaker, if you're do, imagining a huge bustling city, you aren't going to be informed by New York and Los Angeles yep. because they are the biggest cities. Every Chicago pub and says, hey! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Christopher Nolan. Um, <laughs> Famous Chicagoan. So there is that feedback of like people expecting... Japan to look like, or Tokyo to look like these mm. films, these especially kind of anime and stuff like that, because those films have been influenced by what Tokyo looks like, even though yes. they're not actually representing it. It's it's sort of filtered through and recreated, and then of course, people then, if those films are popular in Japan, that then it can influence how you know streets yeah. and stuff look in the future because. They're like, oh, we want to make it look futuristic, like, like the anime we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a tricky one because it's films based on TV, but a separate thing as a film. But the Evangelion rebuild movies mm. uh, are movies. Therefore, they, they count. 
Uh, and Arno, absolutely same thing. He's inspired by a certain Japan that he sees in his head. Mm. And one of the very specific things he sees, because that's, again, that's in like Tokyo 3. It's not actually, <laughs> it's not a real place, effectively. Yeah. So subsequently, the landmarks aren't really there uh, because of all the different events that have happened and, mm. and so on and so forth. But more importantly, he still likes to see narrow streets with older buildings and newer buildings and fucking power lines. <laughs> he Bloody loves a power line. Loves a power line, line yeah. and train tracks. And these are things that are obviously so iconically Japanese and Tokyo to him. And therefore, whatever city he's creating, that will still be there. That presence of nature and technology and progression. And it's weird because we associate Japan being this modern future country because that's how we've seen it in film and TV and things and how we've in, you know, Britain and parts mm. of America and Europe. It's what's been fed to us. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is it's always been 20 years in the past and 20 years in the future at the same time. Mm. And you mentioned like you go into a Japanese office. We weren't kidding. There yeah. are literally fax machines in 2023. To put that in perspective, I have never seen a fax machine in person outside <laughs> of Japan in my entire life. And mm. I am 32 years old. Vibrant part of their culture. They really, more importantly, a really important part of their business culture. Yeah, massively. They so. have hunko mm. stamps, which is like a red oh, stamp. Oh, God, the fucking stamps. Yeah. Christ. And if you, you do that to sign official documents, as because that's a traditional mm. thing. And you um, get it personalized to yourself, mm -hmm. and it essentially, like you said, becomes your signature, right? And if you lose it, oh, you've you lost your in, signature. You're in trouble. Yeah. It's like, well, how can you stop fraud? Don't Just let someone get fucking it. Fucking sign <laughs> thing. Yeah. We're like digitally signing PDFs and stuff these days. Yeah. Like, did you bring your stamp? Like, what do you mean did I bring my stamp? Did I bollocks? <laughs> I haven't used a stamp in literally my entire mm. life. Again, a technology. Why the fuck would I ever need to use a stamp in my life? Yeah, Weird. But yeah, I find that yeah. that culture like clash of future and past so fascinating. And again, nature versus technology, yeah, all that kind of stuff, yeah. very much explored in Evangelion. We talked about Evangelion before. Yes. Dive into that. We, I think we covered it in a What We've Watched recently because it was on a What We've Watched. You, you and I, yeah. Patreon exclusive. <laughs> Go and check that out on Patreon. Not to shamelessly plug the Patreon in the middle of the episode. It's but. hundreds of episodes of content. Yeah. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. It's it's a it's a worthwhile if you I mean it was okay we are shamelessly plugging we are now yeah it's it's a worthwhile <laughs> investment yeah yeah and we reference it because we forget what we have and haven't recorded because yeah. it's all, all equal tier to us exactly yeah yeah and there's this fascinating thing it's again it's coming from country to city it's technology versus nature Japan is incredibly traditional and still rooted in so many of its traditions and then there's a literal like hundred foot tall Gundam statue next to it you know? <laughs> there's a temple. And an actual Gundam. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, for those of you who don't know, Gundam's a big fucking robot. It's a big mech. And they have literal, like, life-size Gundam statues yes. that move and light up and stuff. Yep. Fucking hell. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Japan. But then also a fax machine in the office building next door. Yeah. And a temple that's, like, 800 years old and has stood the test of time and all that kind mm. of stuff. Things like the Tory gates, all that kind of stuff. There's this incredible blend of super modernity and looking forward and hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition literally stood next to each other so often in Tokyo and other parts of Japan as well. And just to touch on it, because we haven't mentioned it at all, and then we'll wrap up for this half probably. 
And one thing Tokyo is infamous for in terms of internal and external stuff is being destroyed by big ass monsters. <laughs> hey! We did an entire kaiju episode, to be fair. Yes. So, yeah, we've covered yeah, it pretty well. We did talk about it. But yeah, yeah you're talking about being a post nuclear society mm. and all that kind of stuff. Godzilla is literally the nuclear bomb personified into a big monster. Yep. That's the whole point of Godzilla. That's why it existed yep. in the 50s. Why it's still an impactful story now. And of course, mm. it has been changed and translated and adapted to mean other things. But that's climate the origin change, of yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah, climate yeah. change, exactly. Yeah. But the fact that I bet a lot of people, when we said, oh, we're doing an episode on Tokyo, you imagined little cardboard things being kicked over by a bloke <laughs> in a rubbery suit. Yeah. And you're not wrong. That's happened a lot. It gets trampled. It gets smashed. It gets destroyed. And again, you get those kind of big, almost like moments like, oh, I recognize that bill. Oh, that's gone. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Godzilla just picked up that landmark mm. and smashed that monster over the head mm. with it. It's, 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 not even, it's not even cinema, is it? If you say it to people, it's like, oh, what film can you think of? Ah, not really films. It's like, are you thinking of Power Rangers episodes in the Beastie <laughs> Boys music video? It's like, yeah, <laughs> I am. Doing <laughs> the intergalactic dance. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to make one of my picks, Shin Godzilla, not only because it is a fantastic movie. It is a fantastic movie. It is. It's brilliant. Um, but also because it shows off Tokyo from a negative. Again, this is the whole Japanese interior perception. Talking about bureaucracy. A fucking, I dealt with this a lot. It was a pain in the ass. Yeah fucking nightmare trying to explain why i'm in the country and i was there for like two weeks i was like i am doing both holiday stuff and work stuff and they're like you need to fill out three forms then i'm like what do you mean i need to fill out three forms no, this I is don't. just in the airport at arrival i'm like i have my visa's already sorted like i've already gone through that mm. what else do i need to do like well what kind of job do you do I'm like i'm gonna be traveling around talking to people i, I my job title doesn't explain what I do, so I don't yeah. want to write that down. That's going to be a whole thing. And I did that, and the guy got very angry with me, and I was like, for fuck's sake, right, okay. See, that is the kind of, you'll see a moment of that in a movie, and then you'll have a friendly local say, hey, it's fine, it's fine. Come with me, man. We can sidestep that thing. That does not happen. That, just, that fucking does not those happen. Those forms will be filled out yes. <laughs> by somebody. You have the opposite. You have an angry local who works for the thing that you're trying to fill out the form, correcting you meticulously and ensuring that everything is correct and that they thought I could write in kanji for a second and I was like <laughs> I def I don't even speak the language let alone writing in kanji so yeah and uh, yeah I think Shin Godzilla is such an interesting one because it blends that day-to-day -day office bureaucratic bullshit yeah which is a massive thing in Tokyo yeah and big monsters smashing shit as well and that that film is so yeah. good and such a brilliant i mean you even picked it as your um for a better phrase the dream sequel the sequel you'd like yeah. to see when you were an yeah. unequal sequel as that's well correct. Like, that's correct shin godzilla is such an interesting film because it gives such a japanese perspective yes and brings that as we said the thing that is so defined from the 40s and 50s the nuclear thing that happened to japan that really like dug into that culture understandably so and then modernizing that and making it, you know, relatable and interesting mm. to both external and internal audiences. While also covering things like uh, relations with America, asking for permission to yeah, do things yeah. first. Um, the train infrastructure, the water infrastructure crawling on the canals, seeing different parts of the city, seeing older buildings with the sort of shale roof. It's like, that's a great example. I should have picked that. 
Um, anyway, but I've got a better pixelator, so it's okay. Um, but there are there are examples of, again, as I say, things you can see inside and outside that show different aspects, and you would never see that from a different uh, Western film, should we say. Yeah, definitely. We're going to get into some pretty interesting picks in the second half. Right, boys? I think people are going to be very surprised. I think so, too. Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible has thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, comedy specials, and so much more, including the sequelizers. That's us. Um, and we're here to enhance this fantastic experience because if you head to audibletrial.com slash sequel, you get a month free and an audiobook on us. And we like to recommend one every now and again. And um, outside the box a little bit here, oh. I'm recommending Strange Weather in Tokyo. It's not outside the box. Makes it's because sense. it's... um. It's a it's a sort of slice of life romance thing about a, uh, a, a an older like thirty year old woman meeting up with one of her old teachers who's like thirty years her senior and they form a relationship and a friendship over time and go around. It's by uh, Hiromi Kawakami and it's pretty damn decent and it's a good read and it's nice and short. So if you're looking for a a selection on there, you can go with that. Alternatively, you can go with whatever you like. It's entirely up to you yeah. and you get to keep that. So. Head over to audibletrial.com slash sequel for a month free and an audiobook on us. Audible. Hakioi! <laughs> that was loud. So let's get into some specific picks, shall we, gentlemen? Talk about some interesting perspectives and views on Tokyo throughout quite an interesting range of films. Credit yeah. to us, I think, because <laughs> we're... Very interesting gentleman with a fantastic selection and taste of movies. You ain't wrong, listeners. So I'm going to start with you, Matthew. Oh, shit. When you kick us off, your first pick about Tokyo. So uh, Jack is right. There are some really interesting films being discussed here. Um, I think listeners will be like, oh, I think going to be this. Mm, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. And, and as Tim also mentioned, things that bring the city to life in different ways. Uh, that being said... I had to go for my boy. <laughs> I had to go for some Akira Kurosawa. Of course. Uh, and the specific film I went for is 1949's Stray Dog. So this is a fascinating one for multiple reasons. Kurosawa, you may go, oh yeah, Seven Samurai and Rashomon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What samurai story is this? It's not. It's a cop drama mm. because he did a lot of uh, crime uh, dramas as well, and they're fantastic. So, uh, I won't give too much of a of the story, but basically, it's the idea of these two, uh, two cops, as Sato and Murakami, and Murakami is this stressed out, sweaty mess because the film is set during a heat wave, a heat wave in late forties Tokyo. Mm. So, ooh, hello. <laughs> in I was in stereo. <laughs> um, and that's fascinating because we're talking about literally four years after the end of World War II. Mm. So, obviously, in Japanese cinema can only do certain things at this point, restrictions about American occupation, blah, blah, blah. And Tokyo is still very much the hub, but it's being rebuilt. And it is poor. It is dirt poor, but it's also got enough affluence there. There are still people who are successful enough there's still a rich poor divide effectively mm -hmm. but the majority of people are suffering and it's a great film in, in its own right it's it's weird because 
uh, Murakami, who's played by Toshiro Mifune, he is uh, a cop who has lost his gun. And it's like, what the fuck do you mean you've <laughs> lost your gun? Um, and he is, um, you know, obviously going around different areas of Tokyo trying to find out what's happened. And, and, and he's pa- partnered up with Detective Sato, who is uh, Takashi Shimura, who's also in tons and tons of Kurosawa films. And he's different because he is always got a fan. He's always got an ice cream. <laughs> he's calm. He's cool. He's collected. And it's like, what's going on here? It's like, well, obviously he hasn't lost his fucking gun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is there are two, the way you could interpret it is there are two different embodiments of Japan at that moment. Murakami is that post-war identity crisis. Mm. Who the fuck are we as a country? Yeah. We've just lost this massive war. The emperor kind of lied to mm. us. We thought we were the good guys. We weren't. We were committing war crimes. We now have had our wrist slapped. We opened up the borders only a hundred years ago. What what are we? Mm. What do we do? A country this is before you get to the whole like, you know, Japan is the future. It was still this like, what does this new Japan look like? Mm. Uh before they caused the, the great miracle effectively, where they started going, Oh, you know, modernization tech, let's go. Mm. And that's that's what Murakami represents. Sato, however, is the sense of optimism. The idea that post-war Japan has to acknowledge what's happened before so it can grow. And like, yeah, okay, it's bad, but we'll figure it out. And there's this representation of that going on at the same time, which is, which is beautiful, in addition to this standard beautiful story. But one thing Kurosawa does a lot is weather. Um, and I love, obviously, Kurosawa for lots of reasons, but if you think about... Um, in Rashomon, you've got the idea of the heat, the sun glaring down through the bamboo leaves at the top. You've got the Seven Samurai final battle with the rain coming down. You've got the fog and throne of blood. It's all about, even like Ran, the start of Ran is just these clouds. It's like, oh shit, storm's coming. It's like, yeah, it is. Um, and so the heat in this thing being so oppressive and you've got uh, Mifune on a bus and he's like crammed in and it's tight and it's horrible. It's sweating. Like that's Tokyo. That's mm. Tokyo then, it's Tokyo now. That feels timeless in, in, in one respect. Um, and there's also a point where Murakami goes undercover. And at this point, the film kind of becomes almost like a time capsule documentary because he goes to these impoverished streets and you see the streets laden with, you know, poorly dressed kids. And it just looks, again, four years after a fucking war happened. It's faces of desperation and analysis of poverty. And the idea of, you know, how this capital, the seat of power has fallen apart and the explanation of, you know, the affluent and the deprived areas and the war and things like that. And it's, it, again, it's a good crime story And what it's doing in its first instance is great. But the backdrop of what Tokyo is, and I mentioned earlier about how, what do you see when you see Tokyo? What's the thing that comes to mind? What's the, what are the buildings Oh, you know, the Tokyo Tower, the Shibuya Scramble, you know, all these things. None of that shit's there. Mm. It's not been built yet. So there are, obviously, of course, there are temples, there are, you know, there are uh, Tory gates, there is, there's, there's cultural presence, there's things you might recognize, but it's the things you don't think you'd recognize. As I said before, the crammed locations, the, 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 the streets just mobbed with people. Yeah, it's countering that vibe and that crowd Absolutely. and that city atmosphere yeah. right and it's in black and white yeah so you can't even do the neon shit because that doesn't that isn't around that's a very good point actually yeah, yeah. yeah so the whole like you know you do see nightlife stuff and the other thing as well there's a beautiful um look at how you know sex in japan because at one point they go undercover they go to this uh kind of like a hostess bar 
It's a very complicated thing to describe, so I'm not going to bother. <laughs> it's not a bar. It's not a strip club. We did a role play of it. Um, <laughs> oh, a, my in God. In a Patreon exclusive thing a while ago. It's also a, a sampler of it on our YouTube. It's clipped out in our highlights video, which I still think is the best thing we've ever done. I actually agree. It's... I, not Arches, to be narcissistic. Arches and Coke. I, I rewatch it, you monster. I, <laughs> I rewatch it and laugh semi regularly. Mm. It's the one piece of sequelized content I have revisited the most. It's on our YouTube channel. I'll post it in the Discord and stuff when this episode comes out. Matt comes into a hostess bar hosted by Tim and I. It's a fucking mess. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a riot. Um, so, in this particular one, these girls are dancing, and it's obviously not the what you might assume. Ah, oh, a classic geisha dance. No, mm. it's a Western forties, mm. you know, Americanized dance. Uh, almost a little bit sort of thirties, twenties flapper esque mm. in a in a sort of way, like you know, very a USO show kind of thing. But the heat wave is still going. There's no air conditioning, and they're doing this choreographed dance on scene, and then they go backstage, and then they get interviewed by the detectives, and they just collapse in a pile of sweaty flesh on the floor and it's it's con it's cramped and it's dense and there's lots of exploitation You're like this is tokyo and again this is tokyo then it's tokyo now as viewed by people from tokyo and with regards to the studio like toho for example studio in tokyo so guess where you'll be filming you'll be filming down the road because it's cheaper <laughs> to do that where we get the local talent you're gonna get them from here yeah um a very strict a very strange parallel to, to close us off with. Good uh, uh, friend of the show, former sequelizer, Stuart Ashen. Um, his his uh, first feature, uh, Ashen's in the quest for the game child, there's a flashback sequence which takes place in Norwich. Doesn't, because everything's filmed in London. Because mm. Riyadh, the director, and others, all the crew are in London to do that one scene in Norwich. Yes, it's the correct thing to do, but it's like everyone's here. It's more expensive to ship everyone to Norwich to get that scene yeah. just to make it look like it's in Norwich. Fuck it, it doesn't matter. Um, and in fact, most of the time, everything's like, oh, it's Norwich, and that's London. Mm. So similar with Tokyo, it's like you know, we'll just film locally because it's hard to film outside. So you got such representation of the city in various different ways. It's a great crime story in of itself. It's some early some some beautiful fucking Mifune. Mm -hmm. um, when is he not? And um, it's telling so many stories with so many layers and saying so much about the people and the city and the time in a way that may or may not have been intentional. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's it's it, it's doing more than you think it is on the surface. And it's a great watch. It's it's a it's an old film. Obviously, it's seventy years old. Mm. Um, but still a little hard to come by. You can get like a DVD copy, I imagine, mm. quite easily. There's no Blu-ray in Britain yet, which is really irritating. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you can find like a cut on YouTube for like next nothing. But it's a great film. It's tight, it's lean, it's brilliant. And that's my first pick. Excellent choice, sir. Thank you. I'm going to bounce to Timbles Matums. <laughs> Thank you. That is not his name. Never referred to him as that. It was a mistake. Um, Agreed. I decided to, I don't know, em emulate Matt and Jack to a certain extent. Oh, I've picked some anime. Yeah, boy. What? <laughs> Basic spoiler alert, folks. 
I didn't pick any anime. Spoiler alert, this is the only anime pick on the entire list. Yeah. What is happening? From, what from f- me, least weeby of the sequelizers. You're not wrong. The world has gone mad. Um, and I've picked a film from 2006, uh, which is The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Some Mamoru Hosa mm. stuff, yeah. Yes. Uh, based on a novel uh, of the same name by Yasutaka Tsutsui, who also wrote the novel that Paprika is based yes. on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one that has had a lot of adaptations, actually. Um, it's been a television series in the 70s. There was a film in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a 1994 TV series, a film in 1997, <laughs> a TV film in 2002, and another film, a uh, live action film in 2010. Um, and, and I think some others besides that. So it has had a lot of adaptations. Mm. It's quite popular. Uh, the book came in, out in the, the 60s, I think. Yeah, 60, 65 to 66. It was a serialized uh, novel. And um, yeah, I think the, the 2006 animated film is really great for a start. It has, um, it's a really, for a film that has time travel in it, it's incredibly grounded for the most part. And then you have these really incredible sequences of the actual leaps through time that have this combination of this incredibly kind of futuristic landscape um, kind of CGI. It's a very traditionally animated for the most part, very little CG integration that we discussed in other um, animated films a while back of around this period where they started, oh, you know, we can do integrate computer animated sections, but in a way that makes them look hand-drawn, but you can always kind of tell. And there's very little of that in yeah. in this. Um, we've only just this is a little bit mm. of here. We've only just got to the point with something like Trigun Stampede. Mm. Got to the point where it's like this CGI looks good. Yeah. yeah. Before yeah. then, it's like, Ugh. yeah. And this film very wisely keeps those sections to the moment of the time leaps, mm. and you have some very futuristic stuff, and you also have this almost like. Um, Picasso-inspired moments of these kind of abstract timescapes that she's traveling through in these moments. Um, But as I say, for the most part, it's an incredibly grounded story of this girl who acquires this ability to jump backwards in time. And it's very much a kind of teenage coming-of-age story. And Initially, she uses it to resit exams that she's failed and, you know, avoid embarrassing herself at school and stuff. And then it very much settles into this story about her relationship with these two boys who are her friends. And she realizes that one of them has a crush on her and basically wants to kind of like avoid him telling her that uh, and and so focuses her attention on the other one in trying to set him up with this other girl. And and there's various kind of twists and turns to the story. And it's set in Tokyo. And, but to me, as someone who has never been to Tokyo and doesn't know the city that well, Mm -hmm. it feels a little bit, weirdly, the thing it reminded me of is uh, London in the film Notting Hill, Ah. (laughs) where it is this kind of slightly idealized even though 
clearly is based in the knowledge of someone who has lived in Tokyo and knows the area well. It is a slightly idealized version of it where it's, I mean, Tokyo is very clean, but, you know, cleaned up and, you know, made made into this slightly, because it's dealing with youth and the kind of idealism of youth and very much this sort of one perfect summer type feeling of being a young person. Uh, it's, everything is kind of, like I say, idealized. It is crystallized into perfection. I think that uh, a good comparison would be if you take a Satoshi Kon like Tokyo Godfathers, mm. which is bustling with rubbish, and it's Christmas with snow, but mm. rubbish and it's tight and it's compacted and it's, mm. it's congested, whereas uh, the girl I through time specifically is quite um, bright yes. and open. It's bright, it's open. Apart from a few significant sections, which I'll get onto, yeah. it never feels particularly bustling. It feels busy, but without being crowded it it simply feels like oh there's a lot going on and there's you know there's people everywhere but they're friendly people and you can say good morning to everyone and they'll say good morning back and, mm. and that kind of thing and so it's a very and it, it, it feels even though it can it sort of travels into the center and there are moments more in kind of built-up areas mm. it's quite a suburban approach to Tokyo. Again, the massive sprawling cityscape that is Tokyo, yes. you get suburbs within Tokyo. You get yeah. little areas and wards that are like yeah. in the, more built up greenery as opposed to... Yeah, yeah, in the same way that, for example, Shaun of the Dead is a London film, there but most go. people wouldn't think of the landscapes and the, the yeah. scenery you see in Shaun of the Dead as, as, or at least if you asked an American, what does London look like? They would not describe the type of mm. parts you see in Shaun of the Dead, even though that's most of what London is. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah i think it's a it's a really it's a great film um a great central performance uh voice performance and and wonderful animation uh and there is a the bit that i really wanted to draw attention to mm -hmm. is uh there's a segment later in the film to to avoid spoiling too much but time gets frozen essentially rather than just these time travel segments it's a moment of frozen time and you get these beautiful sort of almost still life shots of various parts of the city and they end up at the Shibuya crossing um two of the characters and it is frozen as people are all in the midst of crossing and there is this kind of sea of people and these two characters who aren't frozen kind of moving around them and within them and it's such a interesting kind of perspective um on that moment and and using that as a way for two characters to demonstrate them kind of finding and losing each other in the crowd where even though it's not moving it's still a crowd yeah uh and you get this sense uh, and for once in the film you get this sense of tokyo as this crowded space where you can lose someone um and it's a really it's a really beautifully done moment um in the film and i think yeah it, it it really kind of cements home the way that for most of the film it's been dealing with this sort of yeah slightly kind of rose tinted version of tokyo and then it kind yeah. of brings it home and it's a, it's after a moment of kind of quite high tension in the film for a film that's very 
low stakes for the most part. And to then have that kind of moment. And 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 the moments of tension in the film often feel like the city intruding on the characters' lives. Mm. You kind of get that sense of, you know, when they stick to the areas that they know, it's fine. And it's when they kind of creep more into the industrialised areas of the city or the built-up areas of the city that things become more fraught for them. And so there is that, even though it's all set within Tokyo, that sense that we talked about of, like, countryside versus urban built-up area does exist within this film. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was a really interesting portrait of a city within just a great film, a, a beautiful, yeah. really, I mean, it's it's 98 minutes long, I think, and just a really nice, interesting coming-of-age story with a with a kind of vague supernatural or, or science fiction, I should say, twist to it. Which is Hosoda's kind of whole thing, really, as mm. a director. If you think about uh, less Digimon. Um, <laughs> I was going to mention Digimon. Yeah. Fucking Digimon. But like Summer Wars and, and Bell and, and uh, Wolf Children, it's, it's usually a grounded thing with another element underneath it. Yeah. There's an interesting, maybe this is a projection, I don't know if I can know. An interesting thing I took from the movie, which was the uh, a big, hopefully non-spoilery, uh, point is that life is full of uncomfortable things and, and awkward stuff. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be worth living. Yes. Mm. Um, and weirdly enough, I have always sort of interpreted that as, an, as a statement about Tokyo, um, partly because Tokyo is and 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 you know, some people were like, "Oh, I really want to go see that building." You can't. It's been torn down and built over. Mm. Uh, I mentioned about the whole, you know, uh, the 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 stray dog, for example. These iconic areas haven't been built yet, mm. and it's literally a case of like, well, these areas are like, ah, uh, they're not, they don't fit. They're a bit uncomfortable. It's like for a country tradition, you're tearing down a lot of stuff. Yeah, well. We're embarrassed by that. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of that. That's mm. awkward. I want to rip it down and I'll put something new on it. It's like, I think you shouldn't. I think something should just stay as they are. And mm. that's, not, you know, that's, that's a classic Japanese thing of, and same with Britain, actually, to be fair, the past versus the present and the future mm. and tradition versus nature. What we, what we choose to preserve versus what we're happy to let go of. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. what the film, I think, is doing narratively with the yeah. character. So I've, I've always seen a sort of, reflection in how it presents Tokyo in that same way of like as yeah. you say it's a safe ward it's like these kids go play in big parks and that sort of something like mm. this this and they walk by the canal sort of like area and think yes oh yeah, yeah. Tokyo yeah yeah and I think um there is definitely a film that is in kind of conversation with how we preserve history there's a whole subplot yeah. about a painting um which yes. is being restored and the place that it holds in the future essentially um and uh yeah i think it is it's it's talking about the transient nature of things and Mm. that because things not things things may not go perfectly for you but you can't spend your whole time trying to make them perfect you have to accept the things as they are and then Mm. go forward essentially jack for our third pick we come to you and now for something completely different. <laughs> Lost in translation? No. Oh, surprise, surprise. I'm going to dive into the film that 
Traumatised is a strong word. (laughs) (laughs) But not an inappropriate or incorrect word. Mm. Along with old boy, which I have talked about extensively on this show Mm -hmm. as a deeply (laughs) traumatising viewing experience for me. One of my favourite films, but maybe a film I never need to see ever again (laughs) in my entire life. Say hello to 2001's Itchy the Killer, (laughs) which is kind of the same as that. Very different, but just as traumatising and fucked up and weird. I watched them around the same time when they came out. So did I. Not when they came out. I watched them around the same time a few years later, I think Mm. on DVD or if I remember correctly. It was the the time of DVD of Extreme Asia, as it was called in Britain. Oh, God. Yes. Mm. I remember that. Asia Extreme. There it is. (laughs) And yeah, Itchy the Killer is, is that. Um, somebody who I nearly had both of my picks directed by the same director. You may have heard this person before, Takashi Miike, mm. a very well-known, incredibly prolific. I still don't <laughs> understand how Miike just keeps churning out movies. He's like a silent movie director. It's like you know, two per year. Like what the fuck are you talking about? He makes like three or four a year sometimes. That's like insane. How? What? Why? And and <laughs> a bunch of them are really fucking good (laughs) and interesting and unique and weird and it fascinates me uh to give you a quick little insight without spoiling too much of itchy the killer despite it being a a, a 20 year old movie one of the key inspirations for the riddler in the batman is from itchy the killer all the duct tape and him lurking in the shadows with the goggles and being a fucking creep (laughs) yeah that think that but worse but creepier more wanking (laughs) yeah literally through the suit literally wanking through a weird gimp suit thing that kind of looks like the riddler from the batman as much as jack is and he's the least fucked up character (laughs) it's it's a good film though it's a really really good film uh i kind of want to linger on the the wanking especially the wanking not actually itchy himself despite him being the title character the real character you notice in all of the posters and the character who stands out, the most batshit insane wardrobe you've ever seen in your entire life, covered in scars and weird BDSM chains and shit, is Kakihara. Kakihara is this literal sadomasochistic enforcer for the Yakuza, who, this is not a spoiler, this is fairly early on, literally cuts his own tongue out to give to his enforcer boss. And that's like the first half an hour of this movie. Yeah. And he does some mad, fucked up, crazy shit. And it all escalates. And Ichi, the the other char- the other kind of main character, and Kakihara end up crossing over. And there's a big conflict. And lots of stuff happens. It's a fascinating, weird glimpse into the underworld of Tokyo. And I feel like it's something we briefly touched on in the first half. But something that is... Often what I think of and has been highlighted in so much media and stuff is the Yakuza. And yeah. so many people were oh, I'm going to Japan. Oh, I've got tattoos. Oh, can I do this thing? Oh, should you do this thing? Or oh, the Yakuza are everywhere, all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're not. They're not it's no different than anywhere else <laughs> in a big city. There's a bunch of crime happening in every city in the world if you look hard enough. Yeah. It just happens that you see dudes in, oh, I don't know, like giant sparkly suits and silver lot of shirts silk. and stuff lots of silk and body covering tattoos mm. and by that i mean the entire torso just covered in tattoos because i've probably done some shit <laughs> that kind of narrows it down and a bunch of the characters in itchy the killer are 
mad, fucked up, weird hitmen. And if, I think the original translation is more is closer to Hitman, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So it should be closer to Itchy the Hitman rather than the killer. Mm. But yeah, it's a weird, interesting glimpse into that side of the underbelly in the real dark, grimy, sexualized, horrible, violent shit that happens to some of the most horrible people. And you think like, oh, he's the bad guy. It's like, no, no, no. There's a guy much worse than him. <laughs> and there's a guy worse than that as well. And yeah, like, I won't spoil anything. I think it's a really interesting and unique viewing experience, exactly in the same way as Old Boy. If you can go in as blind as possible to Old Boy and to Itchy the Killer, I think you will get the most out of it. Granted, I've said like, it's shocking, so be prepared. But I don't think you're ready. I don't think I can say <laughs> enough that will prepare you for these kind of films where... They have stuck with me fifth, probably 15, nearly 20 years later since I last saw them. And it has this... Mika has this fascinating, unique kind of shot choice and weird shots that linger for far too long but add to the discomfort and the just intensity of certain shots. You get... It's almost like Mike doing like a Kubrick stare kind of thing. You'll get characters <laughs> who look directly mm. almost past the camera at certain points. Like they're looking, they're not looking at you, they're looking through you. And that really brings through this cold-blooded, psychotic kind of nature of some of these characters. There are some characters who are getting also caught up in this whole thing. And you almost see the glimpses of the outside of the underworld and the civilians who have to deal with this shit happening on the streets around them during broad daylight, during the nighttime, all kinds of stuff happening. And yeah, it's a film that's really, really stuck with me over the last decade or so, like I said. And something that I think is what a lot of people think of in terms of like, oh yeah, I want to see this crazy over-the-top yakas or loads of like violent stuff. This is a good example of that. A lot of people think like, oh, I'll go and play the yakas of games or I'll find some yakas a movie or whatever. A lot of them are fairly tame. Tame is not what Takashi Miike does. <laughs> that is certainly not Miike's style. It, it's, it's a classic example of someone says, oh, I, I, I know exactly about the Japanese underworld. Oh, really? And, and not like shaming or gatekeeping. Like, oh, really, oh really. well, actually. But it's the whole like, oh, cool, cool. But what, what, what have you seen? Yeah, well, I've seen Kill Bill. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, yeah, that's got some interesting stuff. Yeah, I've never seen so anything so fucked up and out there. Right. <laughs> Go watch Itchy the Killer. Um, because classically, that's the kind of stuff that inspires people like Tarantino yep. to do these things. I mean, the way I love to see it is the idea that you see a lot of normal Tokyo, which yes. is still, you know, neon and mad and crazy and a lot of grey, oddly enough. Um, and this vibrant splash of colour in terms of both the violence and these fucking video game heightened <laughs> comic book characters yep. walking through the streets in real life. There's one point, again, not a spoiler, where to discipline one of his men... <laughs> hammers this plank of wood to his foot and they're hobbling through the street like yeah. just there all in like you know it's 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 a reservoir dog style like walk in these most ridiculous outfits and yet he's like hobbling and bleeding all over the street it's like what the fuck is this and that, again tame it's the <laughs> tame stuff yeah I, I love the way it like plays on all of the uh, the typical kind of yakuza tropes of thinking about how honor and all that kind of stuff even applies to the nastiest motherfuckers the most evil yeah. brutal violent people 
they value this kind of respect. Like I mentioned earlier, one of the characters literally cuts out his own tongue to present to his superior in the Yakuza. That is the level of dedication and combined with violence and insanity that brings all this kind of thing. And, and that's something I will definitely explore in my second pick as well. This concept of dishonor. That's kind of, hello, I'm doing a theme again. This is kind mm. of my theme for this week is that that dedication to traditions and honor and all that kind of stuff that in a very stereotypical way, everything's like, oh, honor and dishonor, classic Japanese stuff, whatever. But it is so true. It is still baked into so much of the Japanese culture, the Japanese lifestyle, so much of the mentioned like business etiquette and stuff like that earlier. Granted, that's a million miles away from what we see in <laughs> Itchy the Killer, but there is a business-like sense to it. There is this transactional nature of hitmen are paid to do a job. It's just a job. They play us off as like, oh yeah, you know, well, you work in the corner shop and I work as a hitman. It's just a job. Mm. You know, that's not how that works. They're like, <laughs> fundamental is human. That is not just a job. That is doing things to you psychologically. And the psychology of this movie, I find fascinating because it just delves to the darkest depths of honor, dishonor, manipulation from superiors, manipulations between different people in different like classes as well, because much like here in the UK, there is a pretty significant class system in Japan as well, mm. and hierarchy structure and all that kind of stuff. And again, coming around to honor and respect and all that kind of thing. Hierarchical deference is a big thing. Massively so. Being told what to do by somebody and doing it for the good of the collective is like, ah, Japan. Yeah. The whole thing about the, the big thing that really stood out to me when I was kind of researching Japan before I went was the collective versus individualistic mindset. Mm. Here in the UK and, and much of like English-speaking countries and kind of what you think of as like the Western world, the developed countries and stuff like that, we have this more individualistic like, yeah, you do what's best for you and your family, you look after yourself, you push yourself. The American dream. Blah, 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 capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Japan is way more collectivist and you do what's best for the greater good. You do what's best for the company. You do what's best for the country, all this kind of stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of crossover there, but the mindset and the approach is different. And that so is like interestingly demonstrated with this kind of Yakuza underworld side of it where, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm supporting my boss. They're basically my yeah. family. It's like, you're murdering people. Not only <laughs> murdering people, you're brutally torturing and murdering and psychologically manipulating these people, brainwashing people into doing jobs for you. Ah, but it's for the greater good though, right? At the end of the day, that keeps my boss happy and that's what matters at the Would end of the day. Would you rather have a crime all over the streets or if I take care of it? It's like, uh, uh that's not... <laughs> yeah, it's the whole like, oh, should Batman kill criminals? Like, uh... turning into like the Punisher and stuff. Like, is that a good approach? Well, well just, well, if Batman just killed the Joker, we wouldn't have this problem. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. And and weirdly enough, Kakihara, like I said, covered in scars, has a fantastic Chelsea smile going as well. Speaking of the Joker, mm. unfortunately, we don't quite get a let me tell you how I got these scars moment, but <laughs> there's plenty of other mad shit going we on. We get to see what he does with the scars. Oh, that's, yeah. That's more interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of crazy shit going on. So, yeah, I highly, highly recommend it if you want to really kind of psychologically delve into the darkest depths of the Japanese underworld and specifically that unique take on Tokyo. Ichi the Killer is my my favorite Takashi Miike film and mm. I think something that really has stood out to me over the years. Nice. Matthew, back round to you for your second choice. Thank you. Uh, 
I'm going with another Kurosawa. Ah. And by that, I mean a different Kurosawa. Ah. <laughs> As in a different person. A different person. Yeah. Kyoshi Kurosawa. No relation. Um, so interesting thing here. Kyoshi Kurosawa is obviously a Japanese director. He's known as, arguably, the David Cronenberg of Japan. Which you kind of assume would be someone like Mike, but then he goes fucking all over the shop with that one, so it's a bit different. Now, he's done a handful of things, but he has done uncomfortable semi-horror movies that are sort of really tense thrillers. So, Cure and Creepy and Pulse. Pulse is an extremely good one because it came out at the same time as, as Ring, for example. Uh, and seance and that kind of stuff and there's there's lots of things there that he's done that have an uncomfortable horrific nature to them mm. and weirdly enough the film i'm about to bring up has been coded as possibly a horror film and he's like no it's not and everyone's like it kind of is in a way still traumatizing and still, creepy still yep. kind of fucked up yep the film in question is 2008's tokyo sonata nearly one of my picks oh but you beat me to it Matthew. oh really yeah. oh, interesting because one of the things that people haven't really seen a lot of in theories is it's a fairly recent-ish, well, not recent, no, I think about 15, 15 years. years ago, Matthew. <clears throat> oh, sorry, I'm a cinema. We're old. Like yeah. So, I yeah. didn't see it in the cinema. I went out of my way to look it up, basically. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So I, I assume I watched it legally. <laughs> <clears throat> there was no sailing of the high seas here. So... This film in question, much like Stray Dog, Stray Dog is an analysis of poverty and desperation in the capital. Tokyo Sonata, while a family exploration, is also analysis of poverty and desperation in the capital. Um, it's a look at the family dynamic coming out of, and this is a, it gets a little bit interesting here. We talk about the idea of, the, you know, post-war Japan being identity crisis, because I too have a theme. And uh, who are we? What are we? Oh my God, everyone's poor. How are we going to succeed? Japan had this massive economic growth, what's called, you know, the, the, the great miracle, as it were. And then the 90s were known as the lost decade, mm. which has been renamed the lost 20 years, which has now been renamed again the lost 30 years. <laughs> Millennials, you're feeling that yet? <laughs> and um, it's because Japan's uh, economic, you know, presence has never recovered, despite having, you know, huge major corporations and companies. The yen is still at this point 160 to the pound. That your currency is fucked when you're using three digits to one mm. of a different currency, uh, a different currency, a different country. That's you know a thousand yen is a, is is ten dollars, and you're like, God damn, that doesn't mean your country's doing great. As as a very broad economic terms. So coming out of that terms, and it's 2008, so we're literally on the on the verge of another financial crisis. Oh happening. God, yeah, I didn't even put that together. Yeah. yeah. And the story is basically about um, a Japanese salaryman losing his job and lying to his family. And he goes out and he uh, lies about, you know, having a thing. He walks around and then he finally gets a job working as a janitor in a mall. He's very embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, and he's got two kids, one who's joined the American military. You get a huge thing I mentioned earlier about the American presence and so on and so forth. His other kid wants to study piano and for some reason he's decided no i was too lenient on my first son <laughs> i will not be on the second one he can't have this it's like why to the point that he hits the kid and nearly gives him a fucking concussion um it, it's a charming story <laughs> um 
And it's weird because the story itself is about, you know, as I say, this man who's a father, he's in a midlife crisis, he's not a great person, his wife gets into a really weird stage where she picks up a random, well, gets a, doesn't pick him up, she gets fucking accosted by this homeless dude who kidnaps her in a car, and then she goes away and escapes, and then goes, you know what, nah, I'll go pick him up again, because she's like, what the fuck is happening here? Mm. Um, and the kids are going through all kinds of weird stuff, and it's it's a hard watch, because the whole thing is about ultimately how the city has failed them how mm. the country has failed them you mentioned the american dream thing earlier right? oh like, yeah come to the big city you'll get a job you'll support your family and all that kind of stuff it's not that easy it's never that easy it has a big parallel for me and it almost feels kind of more korean than japanese in many ways very true parasite i think works as a quite a nice parallel because korean cinema Fucking loves talking about class systems. Really does. A rich versus the poor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty much this. You'll see like a down and out father dealing with problematic children, losing his job, dealing with assholes he has to work with, all this kind of stuff. I think for for me as kind of an, an, an access point, like I said, I think I watched this again probably 10 years ago, something like that, on a very legal streaming service mm. that was available 10 years ago. And it really hit home how, like I said, kind of what I mentioned earlier, like how strong, how much I think the class system defines us here in Britain, because it is especially now with more than a decade of the conservative government and all that kind of stuff, the cost of living crisis we're in really feels like we're kind of hammering home, like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Everything's more expensive now. Fuck you. And similar kind of vibes, right? We've got this, this down and out guy where, the system has failed you. You have a family to support. Good fucking luck. You're not our problem now. So here you go. Yeah. Deal with your kids. Deal with your kids whilst also lying to your kids and your wife mm. about your daily activities of being like, yeah. Oh, by the way, your wife's going through some mad traumatic shit at the same time as well and getting kidnapped. Like, yeah. but, but let's worry about that later. It's like, there's so much stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. And again not to spoil parasite but it feels like that everything builds up and builds up and builds up and you get that kind of escalation of everything is going wrong and it all just starts to unwind and pull at every thread mm. imagine like oh well at least the kids oh the kids are not fine well at least the wife's oh the wife's not fine oh, fucking hell there's a scene where the wife goes talking about you know society and the city as the embodiment of society failing people the wife goes in to buy a car and the showroom dickhead is constantly saying, ah, oh, you want this? It's like, no, 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 no. Not the family van thing. Mm-hmm. I want this other car. It's not like a sports car. It's just a regular car. Mm. And she's like, no, 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 why would you need that? You, as a woman, need this. Mm. And it's like, uh. And it's like, it's also dangerous to drive around. You never know what will happen. And of course, things do happen. Um, and it, it's, it's a good reflection of how the, the city is a collection of stories. Mm. And they're all happening invisibly. And you don't notice these things because everybody's preoccupied with their own shit. And also because their collectivist society is like, don't look, don't look, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't mm. think about it, don't talk about it. Um, and uh, yeah, Tokyo Sonata. And it ends from all this tense build up on a very slow piano piece. The end, as the title probably implies. And it's beautiful and it's crushing and frustrating because you think, you don't deserve this. You fucking 
broken people. And I don't mean that in a sort of disparaging way. I'm like, because they, they do actively bad things. Yes. And it's not their fault, but it kind of isn't helped by them either. And nobody learns anything. Yep. It's great. I think it's good. And again, an interesting reflection of what it means to be a Tokyo person. And, and this Kurosawa, Kyoshi Kurosawa, is one of those famous examples of somebody who films almost, I think almost every single movie he's made has been in Tokyo. Mm. And when asked why, he said, because the studio's in Tokyo, it's too expensive to go anywhere else. <laughs> That's why I film in Tokyo. It's the whole like, oh, a lot of these uh, things you film at are in Norfolk. It's like, yeah, I wonder fucking why. Because <laughs> I always have to put it everyone up half in Norfolk, half in Japan. For Super Happy Kill Time, it's all over the shop. <laughs> We've got all, all, all manner of countries. But yes, great film, Tokyo Sonata. Uh, very, very different. But as I say, a bit of a other side of the coin showing that in 1949 with Stray Dog, you've got the deprived economically mm. and the crammed, bustling invisibility. 2008, same shit. Mm. Tim, what's your second pick for us, please? Economic deprivation, you say? Ooh. Families pushed to crime, you say? Ooh. The, the, the dark side, the, the, un, the downtrodden underclass, you Ooh. say? Uh, Japanese people speaking Japanese. You say? There are so many parallels. <laughs> Thematic themes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. It's all about the themes. Uh, my film deals with all of that as well. Nice. Uh, yeah. My pick is by one of the greatest living filmmakers at the moment. Uh, I have no problem with that statement. Yeah. 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 Uh, Corrieda. Yeah. Uh, 2018's Shoplifters. Great film. Uh, it is. Um, it's funny you mentioned Parasite because uh, when I first saw this, that that was one of the comparisons I thought of. Yep. Um, and the other one was uh, another film I love, The Florida Project. Yeah, mm. yeah, good show. Um, we talked about that in a previous episode. Can't remember what it was. Yeah. Either remember you specifically talked about it, Tim. Yeah. Don't I? No. Nope. Hey, listeners. You'll remember. Right You'll in. tell us. Check on the Discord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the people on the Discord remember the show much better than we do. Yeah. Yeah. People chronicle, chronicle it for us because we have to think about so the we next don't episodes. Have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this for people who haven't seen it is about a a family in the truest but loosest sense of the word. Yeah. Um who are at the very edges of poverty in Tokyo and who survive through a man variety of means, but one of them is through shoplifting. Mm -hmm. And they are, uh, it, their lives are thrown into uh, a certain amount of turmoil or uh, complicated, shall we say, uh, when they come across a sort of five-year-old girl who has basically been abandoned. Um, and they decide to take her in first for the night and then try and find a way to take her back to her family and realize that she's being abused. Mm. Uh, and so decide, well, we'll just hang on to her. She could have a better life with us. Exactly. The homeless people who are shoplifting. Yeah. It's like, that's a fucking statement. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the film then just kind of for a large section of it, just kind of follows their lives. Mm. Um, and you see how they all live. And it is this interesting little, like I say, it's sort of a makeshift family where you have um, 
I think let me get this right. It's two sisters mm-hmm. uh and their grandma who is only grandma to one of them. I'm not sure. The family tree gets very complicated. It does. Um, because they are they are living like a family unit, but you realize that a lot of them aren't actually related. Yeah. Um, as the film goes on, and you realize that um Shota, who's the the young son who's about I guess about kind of like 11 or 12 he's meant to be. Um, as the film goes on, you, re- you realise that he was sort of quote-unquote acquired by the family in a very similar manner. You find out that he got, they broke into a car and rescued him. And there's a kind of question hanging over it of like, did they just abduct him? Or was he actually had he been abandoned or what is the story behind this and it's kind of left ambiguous um and japan has a history with almost urban legend but partly true of like uh coin locker babies mm. this is gonna sound bad listeners cover your ears if you want to um of like oh no i can't afford to keep this child well that locker costs 100 yen it's a really busy street i'll just leave the baby in there it's like, someone oh, will Jesus hear it Christ. yeah, yeah. And of course, there's the whole like someone will hear it, it's like, what if they don't? And then yep. there have been instances of this thing happening. Mm. So it's the whole like the abandonment stuff and the whole like I can't deal with this. It's too much pressure, and I can't yeah. talk to people about it because the society doesn't let me. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a as you say the ambiguity ambiguity of did you just commit a crime or did you actually mm. save this kid or uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and you see how each different member of the family is kind of coping and the um uh the sort of the 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 father type figure who's initially working as like a construction worker, but then gets laid off because he's sprained his ankle. Mm. Um, and he's the kind of the main shoplifter of the group, him, uh, uh, Os- Osamu and uh, Shota, who's his little protege. Uh, and then you have the, the, of the two sisters, there's the kind of uh, the mother figure of Nabuya. Um, and Aki, who's a younger, her younger sister, who is sort of doing sex work, weird, modern geisha, classic Japan, yeah, peep show type stuff. Yep. Um, it's it's not full pinky, like uh, pink hotel. What do they call them? Not pink hotel, some, something like that. Come yeah. Now, yeah, pink room sort of stuff. And it's not full hostess club. It's like it was weird in between. sort of yeah, like, yeah. Um. And then, essentially, their decision to adopt this little girl starts to unravel because the parents go to the police and say, oh, she's been abducted. And suddenly they have to hide, you know, their, their, mm. the, the fact that they've taken her. And that starts to complicate things. And, and it starts kind of unraveling from there and becomes a real kind of tragedy of, of circumstances. But there's also so much joy and this is you know this is kind of the the florida project angle and to a certain extent parasite you know where as desperate as these people's situations are and as hard as as much on the fringes of society that they live they are finding ways to find joy um there's a a beautiful sequence where they go to the beach um there's a, a, a a sequence which really stuck with me which is them looking out of this tiny little gap that they have that they can see the sky uh, between the, the, the edge of their home and some, some trees that are growing over. 
listening to fireworks and they can't even see the fireworks. They're just listening to them and imagining them and talking about ones they've seen in the past. And it's such that to me felt like such a kind of central image of the film of these people who are so closed off, who've been so pushed to the edges of society, eking out these little moments of joy when they can. Um, And it really is just a, a beautiful kind of intimate portrait of a family and a side of Tokyo that often isn't presented. You know, it is a real grimy the place they live is an absolute shithole as much as they try and make it a home and um it's cramped it's small it's, it's cramped, run down it's it, inefficient it, exactly you know and the the places that they're working you know the construction sites and the um i think it's a laundry the the, the mum kind of works at until yeah. she gets yep. fired um or let go uh and 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 in a really cruel way where the boss is like i can't afford both of you you two work out which one of you is going to lose your job. Yeah. And it's like, that feels so just. I it, washed it, my hands of this. Yes. Yeah. In that very, you know, deferential um, and uh, collectivist approach of Japan of just mm. like, well, I've told you that one of you's got to go. Uh, so you work it out amongst yourselves. And, you know. Also feels like a bit of an anecdote of a feudal lord saying, like, I cannot keep all these things. Yeah, you know, it's almost, um, you know, King Solomon and the baby or something like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. One of you choose seppuku. Yeah. You can't cut yourself open in, 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 in modern times. The yeah. suicide rate in Japan is huge. It's like, uh, career-wise, yes. fall on your sword. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a, an absolutely beautifully observed film. Um, and... Uh, gorgeous and and Corriere is so good at just capturing these really just intimate portraits of real people i know he's inspired a lot by ken loach mm, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. you can really feel that in in his filmmaking and his approach to just stories of real average people i i, I cannot cannot stress that enough and emphasize or underline that enough Corriere is an astounding talent um, I think this was up for Best International Picture Oscar. Yeah, it won the Palme d'Or. It did, and I feel like it lost out to something, and I went, ah, yeah, fair, that's... What the fuck was that? Was it up against Parasite? <laughs> um, I can't remember. Yeah, because it's the whole, like, following year, kind of what it was submitted to, but the point is, yeah. uh, while, that, while uh, um, we're doing the internet wizardry here, um, Corrida, every film he's done, has so much wealth in it because of the uh, investment in people, the exploration of people, the reflection of people. And it feels grounded. And because of that, it's kind of like an Ozu kind of story from the 50s. Yeah, people have, people have said he's the, he's the modern Ozu. Yeah. yeah, It was Roma, by the way. Roma! That is, so it was always going to be like you were going to yeah. lose it. Yeah. It was yeah. Like, I remember when it came out, like, oh, Shoplifts is going to win it. And then Roma's like, ah, shit. <laughs> oh, God. Um... Yeah, no, so again, a great choice. And again, I love the idea you mentioned about the whole the, the Hanabi, the, the, the fireworks thing, because so much in Tokyo, you can be there and miss so much because everything is on top of everything, on top of everything, mm. on top of everything. And so if there are fireworks, like where the fuck do you go to see them? Yeah. Where is there a clearing where you can see anything? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great film. Good choice, Tim. Jack. Finish us off. 
I certainly shall. And I'm glad you mentioned Seppuku there, Matthew. <laughs> little segue for me there. So I want to dive all the way back. 61 years back to 1962. Bloody hell. And talk about one of the greatest samurai movies ever made. Mm-hmm. It's not Akira Kurosawa, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, no. We've already touched on Kurosawa and another Kurosawa. <laughs> Different Kurosawa. But I want to talk about Harakiri. The fucking cinema. Yes, yeah. Cinema, I believe, <laughs> as the kids say these days. Good Kino. Kino. <laughs> I, I don't understand that phrase, but I've seen the kids saying it. I believe that's the thing. It's just German for cinema. Yeah, I know. But it's a thing that the oh, kids I, say. I know, I know the way. I've, I've been on our Discord. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it exclusively on the Discord. I watch you guys say it. I want to join in sometimes. I'm like, I can't. I'm too old. Same. Same. Uh, it's directed by Masaki Kobayashi mm. and is just this incredibly heartfelt powerful performance and just is well for me like one of like you said earlier like you think of kurosawa you think of seven samurai you think of all these like yeah definitive things but tatsuya nakadai's performance in this as hanshiro the main character who is this you probably guessed by the title disgraced samurai who wants to basically get his lord's permission to commit seppuku. And that is the traditional way of gutting yourself with your small knife and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure you guys know that already. Hence the name Harakiri, which is another word for this uh, like traditional honorable suicide. And you essentially experience his reasoning and his life going through and up to that point. And it starts with him going to his lord saying, I have committed a terrible thing i have brought great dishonor to our clan i need to earn my life and i'm like whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on hold on, hold on. you Anshira, really he's like yeah, yeah yeah let me tell you the story and we go back through and that seems really cliche now but trust me it's a fucking masterpiece it is this brilliant balance of just quiet powerful moments and interesting characters and in a very kind of like classic, again, thinking you're you're probably all thinking of like the classic Kurosawa stuff, thinking back to like spaghetti westerns and all that kind of stuff. It it is in that kind of vein. You are getting these incredibly cinematic, quiet moments that are just these beautiful shots of landscapes and small little facial expressions and glances that are exchanged between characters. It is incredible to look at the performances pretty much across the board are fascinating and nuanced and interesting and is the film that really drilled it into me about this whole as i was saying earlier my theme for these two films the honor the hierarchy the understanding that you must do what is best you must sacrifice your own life because you have done a dishonorable thing and brought shame upon your superiors who, much like you were saying, Tim, they aren't often your blood relatives, but they are your family. Mm -hmm. This is what you do to protect your people and your family and to not bring, whether that's, you know, spiritual burdens or business burdens and knowing that, oh, no, we don't have any shameful samurai here. We only work with the best of the best and all that kind of stuff. You're trying to maintain and save face for all the other clans and all the other possible 
you know collaborations and and alliances that you can build in the future and it's heartbreaking and beautiful both in acting and in cinema and i think for me it really kind of defined samurais for me even i think i saw it around the same sort of time as kurosawa and for years had kind of just not been aware of who directed what apart from my dad saying oh yeah it's all like brilliant stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and i had just kind of assumed not even knowing who akira kurosawa was because i was too young just assuming that's all the japanese director did all the samurai films and i just had in the same way i thought the same thing about spaghetti westerns all spaghetti westerns all the western movies are basically the same rio bravo is the same as the good the bad and the ugly i'm too young to tell the difference between you know yeah. directorial visions and stuff that's innocence of cinema exactly yeah i've gone back to these movies quite a few times since then as you know i'm not a person if you've ever listened to the show before who tends to go back and watch films multiple times but going back and experiencing like the films of my childhood as an adult and now knowing oh that's a fucking masterpiece like i didn't appreciate this 25 years ago because i was fucking seven and probably should have been watching this film when i was seven it's black and white you're fine that's basically the rule right it's like oh it's on it's on that old movies channel the blood's all black you're fine fine. yeah yeah it's (laughs) fine it's fine and yeah you even have like the subtle moments and i remember understanding this is gonna be a weird tangent um jackie chan's character john wen talking in shanghai noon about cutting off his ponytail Mm. and i was like oh it's like the samurai and they're top knots like i brought that like connection to like oh that's a thing that is built into this like class system and this this role of the protector of the people you must have this thing that denotes you are still a powerful honorable person who has a place of status and once you disgrace yourself or if you do something you chop off the knot you chop off the ponytail and i'd kind of been like oh yeah that makes all the sense in the world i'd already kind of like built that connection in my brain and something I think that really played on this really well more recently in hello in a video game form again is Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, I think that that game does a brilliant job of exploring trying to escape the boundaries of tradition and all that kind of stuff. And in kind of contrast to that, Harakiri is the perfect exploration within those boundaries and discussing the possibilities and the limits and is it still the most honourable thing to do to commit seppuku at the end? Or are you better off serving the people in a different way? And how does that work? What are the consequences of that action? All this kind of stuff. It, it then turns out, seems to be the story of just one simple guy going through his life and understanding, I've done a bad thing and this is the end. But it brings up wider conversations of the entire culture and their entire people and how it all works and how it all ties together and how the system and his status relates to this thing and the consequences of this action. It's fucking storytelling. It's brilliant. Yeah, to understand uh, the film and the act, Harakiri, is to understand so much about what's ingrained in the psyche and subconscious. So, you know, you could watch like uh, a movie about Iwo Jima during World War II. It's like, I don't get it. I mean, yeah, they're, they're probably going to lose, but why don't they just surrender to the Americans? Why are they doing what they did, which was put grenades under their chins and blow themselves up? And, and like, oh, you're watching a, a contemporary uh, crime movie. It's like, I don't get it. Why is the suicide rate so high? 
And uh, I don't get it. Why is this guy killing infirm people and, you know, the elderly and disabled people? It's like, because they're a burden and they can't kill themselves. So I'm going to help them along the way. It's like, where the fuck did you pick up? That was a good idea. Mm. Because they've been doing it for hundreds of years. Mm. And it's this whole, like, I want to, I mean, again, uh, the, one of the major plot points of Harakiri. Can I please possibly kill myself on your hallowed ground? Yes. <laughs> what? You can go fuck off and die somewhere else, but yeah. I want to do it here and restore a bit of my honor. It's like, yeah. what the fuck? It seems twisted to us. Mm. But when you put it through that lens, but then also it is a critical lens. So it does say, is this the right thing to be doing? As you said, Jack. And it is also uh, set in Edo. It's set in Tokyo before it was Tokyo. Yeah, mm. yeah. I didn't even mention that. Didn't even occur to me. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's the whole, like, the reflection that, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to end my life. And uh, not to spoil the story, I'm going to take some fuckers down with me. <laughs> um, but basically... It's a, a good fight. It's a good fight. It's a good, fight. A good, fight. It's, a good it's fucking brilliant. But what, one of the best... I'm going to put this on there I'm right now. Go, yeah. One of the best samurai fights in cinema history. One yeah. of the best sword fights in cinema history. When you think of two people, often multiple people in these fights, yeah, but two people squaring off in a field in full just ronin, essentially. The, the full outfits, the katanas at the ready, just staring at each other. The wind rustling. The wind rustling the reeds <laughs> in the corner. Oh, it's so fucking good. That, that's that shot in this fucking movie. It's brilliant. Yeah. And that's all Edo. Yeah. In the same way that, um, very strange thing. Where I'm from in London is called Highbury. And the area is called the Highbury Barn. And I say it with an Irish accent because all my family did at the time. But Highbury Barn. The Highbury Barn. Oh, um, barn, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. sorry. And, um, and Highbury Fields and Highbury Terrace. Like, yeah, because it used to be a fucking woodland. It's like, mm. I mean, we're talking about North London close to central London. Might as mm. well be, you know, it's, it's like a literally a 20-minute walk from the city of London. It's, mm. you know, it's so close. Um, and London's so spread ab apart now. It's one tube stop from the middle. But the point I'm trying to make is, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of hundred years, that it was fields yeah. and land. And Edo is the same example. It yeah. was canals, it was rivers, it was reeds, it was uh, marshland, it was, you know, all this sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, as well as uh, compounds and buildings where you'd have like, ah, oh, this is a noble site. I'm going to go to the special place to die. Yeah. And it's such a surreal, I'm going to make a, almost like a pilgrimage. Uh, and the city is reflected in that sort of thing in a way you wouldn't think necessarily. Because you're like, again, what's the landmark? Well, this could be anywhere. No, 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 no. This is important because mm. it's here. It's also the seat of power of technically corruption. And mm -hmm. uh, again, I don't want to spoil story stuff. But yes, it, it, it's, it's, it is as much a reflection of the city as any of the other pics, which I find fascinating because... Um, it's the people that make it mm. as a city and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's a great choice. Well, that's our final choice for this week. You've got plenty of stuff, hopefully, to go and research and find. Good luck finding some of these movies on streaming services. Uh, I checked before we started recording. Some of them are basically impossible to find. Itchy the Killer, not available in the UK anywhere on mm. streaming. Plenty of the other ones are not either. So, yeah. like I said... Highly recommend you go and check all of these films out. If you have any other recommendations, please do let us know. Hit us up on social media. 
hit us up on the Discord. Links for all that stuff are available at sequelizers.com. Either click on the Discord button, or if you click on the About button, you can find all of our social media there. I am JLW Chambers. If you want to contact me directly and just rant about how traumatizing Inchi the Killer is and what a masterpiece <laughs> Harry Kiri is, I am or there. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. <laughs> I mean, I mean, hard to disagree with you there, Tim. Uh, Matt, how can people follow you and complain about your choice of films on the internet? <laughs> you don't can try. You dare. Uh, Stogs, S T O G H Z, and all the social medias. You can also go to cheesemint.com and see the things I make, uh, including stuff shot in Japan. Ah. Uh, with more footage to come. And uh, you can go to theredrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews of films. I mean, again, the most recent Hosoda film, Bell. I've done that on there. It's a great film I've reviewed. There's other such movies. All manner of things. Around time of release, I'll have written an Ant-Man review. Go read that. Oh, yeah. Um, Tim. Tim Wadokodeska. Uh, you can find me on uh, the slowly sinking ship that is Twitter. <laughs> Fucking that mm, pit. Yeah. Uh, and also on Letterboxd, which I'm trying to use more. Uh, I am trivia underscore lad on both of those. Uh, and hey, while you're tracking us all down on social media, why don't you hop over to a different app? Ooh. Uh, the app that you're listening to us on, oh. perhaps, and give us a five star review because we deserve it. Five shurikens for us, thank you. That sounds painful. Uh, just placed on a in a in a row. Oh, okay. To to, to, yeah. to admire. Yes, not not uh, 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 on the mantle, <laughs> not yeah. through the temple, and to threaten your little brother with. Yeah. <laughs> Straight in the eye. Yeah. As Tim said, please do review us on whether that's Google Podcasts, whether that's Spotify, whether that's all that other kind of stuff. Please do give us a review on there. We very much appreciate it. Spread the word. Share us around with your friends. If you know somebody who's interested in Tokyo cinema or Japanese cinema in general, mm. perfect episode to share around. Hopefully this will spark very interesting discussions on the social media and the Discord as well. We basically have a post show on the Discord when this comes out on the Friday for the patrons and the Tuesday for the public release as well. So that is the place to be for essentially any questions, any other suggestions, all the links and stuff that we talked about. I'm sure there'll be trailers and clips shared around, all that kind of mm. stuff. So go and join the Discord if you haven't already. We'll be back next week, once again, with something very, very different. And then, Ooh. it's soon time for Equalizers Season 12. Good Lord. It's so close now. Worryingly close. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Me too. Nervous, but excited. Not nervous for the content, nervous for how much we have to write. Correct. Agreed. There is, Agreed. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Come on, Underscore?